Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, January the 8th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Is somebody on the phone already? Yes. Let's do this. Let's be respectful to the callers. So we'll go to the phone, come back. Rev says that the University of South Carolina is now officially a basketball school. <laughs> Prove me wrong. But before we go down that road, somebody called in earlier. Let's go to the phone, Josh. Yes, well, before the show started this morning, we had Verd on hold. So, Verd in Marlboro County, the floor is yours, my friend. Good morning, man. Uh, one week away from the start of reclaiming our country with the Iowa caucuses uh, next Monday. And uh, I look for Donald Trump. To, uh, hopefully, he will uh, at least meet expectations of what the polls show. He's been up there. Uh, you know, plus 40, 30, uh, 48 for a long time. And I just hope that uh, the weather doesn't play anything into it. And, uh, you know, so our, the ground game for the Trump campaign has supposedly been solid. So I look for President Trump to start it off next uh, Monday uh, with the task of uh, retaking the country. Bird, I've heard over the weekend, you may know more than I do about this. You and I have some friends inside baseball, so to speak. I heard after the Iowa caucus, either that night or the following morning, Ron DeSantis, if he has, you know, if he underperforms, he's going to spend his campaign and formally endorse Donald Trump. What do you make of that? Well, the only thing I have heard is that uh, if he underperforms, he's going to suspend his campaign. And, you know, looking at over the past several months, you know, just people talking, uh, the DeSantis people said that if – if he did get out early or whatever, they would support President Trump. So, I think I think it's written in the tea leaves that uh, that the Santos people they're never going to support Nikki Haley. And I think that uh, you know the Santos uh, is trying to win the election, and him and Trump got off to a rocky start. But you know they both are, are he's a great governor, great conservative, and uh, I think that uh, yeah, his people will definitely uh, fall in line with. Uh, President Trump's uh, campaign, and, and I honestly believe that uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, for the good of the party and for the good of itself, you know, he's a young guy, four years from now, we're going to be talking a lot about Ron DeSantis. So I think it would behoove him to endorse the person who's been leading since last November a year ago when he announced he was going to run to uh, save America and make America great again. Thank you, Vern. Appreciate that. 843 843- Six six one zero nine three seven. Yeah, I'd read some I mean, of the same thing, but I didn't know whether to believe it or not because it was Twitter. But I mean, if if you think about it, if he underperforms in in Iowa, I mean, it's not about the party. It's not about loyalty. It's not about you know where do you. It's, it's live to fight another yeah, day. It's preserving your sure. future. I mean, sure. it, exactly. I mean, it, you know, I think DeSantis sees clearly that this is not his time, but it could eventually be. And um, you know, he's not offended that I know of the America First movement. I mean, he's not endeared himself like Trump has, but he's not offended uh, the America First movement. Uh, I want to kind of get into that just a bit. There's a lot I've got to say about um, the beginning of the primary process and some things that I think I was right about in 2023, some things I'm sure I was wrong about in 2023 as we kick off primary season one week from today in the Iowa caucus. You ready? for the most important presidential election <laughs> this country has ever, ever seen. Um, it is an odd election, but there's no doubt about it. Drew McKissick said Thursday, whether it's the most important ever or not, it is very odd in that there are a number of states trying to keep the front runner 
from the Republican Party um, off the ballot. They may indeed um, succeed. I don't think they will. I think the court, uh, Roberts, from what I'm gathering and reading a little bit, Roberts is trying to measure some of the liberal justices and what their opinions are because he doesn't want a 6-3 decision, doesn't want a 5-4 decision especially. He'd love this thing to be 9-0 one way or the other, and I think we know if it's 9-0 which way, the interpretation of the 14th Amendment. Quite the stretch to believe that um, that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment gives you the allowance to take Trump off the ballot. I want to go back to something you and I were talking about, and, and then we'll take our break, and then we'll move on into politics. I've got a theory that I thought about over the weekend, um, and it was you know, I was talking to a couple of guys from the collective, the NIL at USC, and about how things are going, how they're progressing, a um, couple of welcome homes over the weekend, um, and this would play into Clemson a little bit. Um, the Gamecock fan base is a is a is a divided bunch, and by that I mean Rev. You will not be you will not find this relatable. But you've heard me talk about the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, John Roach, um, the Catholics from up you know in New York, and Frank McGuire and whatnot. I believe that some of the issues that the University of South Carolina football team deals with are the the donors that have gotten to the point in their financial lives that they're able to contribute big sums of money to the University of South Carolina. They, I mean, they, their their best days were probably in basketball as members of the Atlantic Coast Conference. When I, I, I think last week I may have touched on this. I when, when I talk to the guys at you know Garnet Trust, they'll tell me that some of the issues they deal with is the, the the legacy tradition of some of the schools in the Southeastern Conference. Um, I mean, I've argued Ole Miss and Missouri are kind of the uh, the two schools that should be in our same neck of the woods, and they're not. I mean, they've left us. They, they, they've gone and done their own thing. Now, Missouri would be different having formerly been to the Big Eight, but Ole Miss has been to the SEC for as long as I can remember. So I talk a lot about me being a digital migrant. I mean, I grew up writing and and then typing. I mean, I took typing from Miss Pettigrew uh, two years in high school. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. And how many words can you type a minute? One day you might have to have that skill. Uh, I don't know if I will or not. Um, obviously, typing is is kind of a thing of the past as we speak today. <laughs> but but kind you, of look. What's well, I mean, no, but you see where I'm headed. Yeah. I mean, I I just believe that yeah. there is a lot of the fan base at USC conflicted with being, a, you know, I mean, obviously when the SEC came knocking in 1992, that was a financial windfall unlike any the university has ever experienced. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. Um, but but it's still, when you, my, my generation and older, I'm 60, so, so I would be, I mean, I remember the ACC well. I mean, I was a young kid, but I can remember um, the, the, the ACC, John Roast, the ACC tournament playing, I mean, Lee Dedman and Kevin Joyce jumping in, you know, the uh, the 70 or 71 ACC championship game. I'm not, I've heard those stories since I was a child. Um, you go to Alabama, Ole Miss, Auburn, Florida, Georgia. I mean, it's SEC for the balance and duration of their existence. And I think the University of South Carolina's fan base, not the youngers. I mean, not your kids or my kids. I mean, they grew up with the SEC. 
and and you grew up in Cincinnati and then moved down here. I grew up in the Deep South as a Gamecock fan, so I've spent about well, I, you know a, a certain percentage of my fandom being a member of the ACC. And when they were in the when when they left the ACC, they became an independent, a little bit like the Jews in the in the wilderness, just kind of wandered around for a long time, wondering where you know where to go and what's next. And it was still kind of an ACC school. I mean, they they played NC State in football. They played Wake Forest and Duke in in football. They tried to drum up some games in basketball, not as successfully as they did in football. Played Marquette, Notre Dame, um, Canisius, and Villanova, and you know um, Niagara, Seton Hall. Some of these schools up north that McGuire had such a a relationship with. I, I guess the point I'm making, and the only reason I'm making the point is somebody I saw on Twitter yesterday said, um, you know, the University of South Carolina's basketball U today, the men's and women's programs are a combined 26 and 1. Um, I mean, I hope it's not basketball U. <laughs> I hope it still <laughs> aspires to be a football let university. Let me make sure I'm understanding here. You're saying so that the donors, the people that can give the money. That not what they all. Re- not, not all, but some. But my but, age and older. But they reminisce in their good old days are when – South Carolina had some success in basketball back in the ACC. Well, I mean, when you think the, the schools of the SCC outside of Kentucky, I mean, outside of Kentucky, Kentucky would be misfit. I mean, they would be a blue blood, no question about it, one of the all-time great basketball programs in the history of college basketball. But you take Kentucky out of the equation, I mean, it's football. I mean, it's football, 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 and then you've got Vanderbilt and academics. And I'm convinced the only reason Vanderbilt is in the conferences to make their the conference's GPA legitimate enough to be certified as a Power Five um, conference. But then you go to the ACC, and you've kind of got Clemson. I mean, it's football, 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 but everybody else in that league, uh, in, in, especially in the original eight, I mean, it's basketball. It's Tobacco Road. It's the ACC basketball tournament Greensboro. And if you're a Gamecock fan 60 years or older, I mean, that was a big deal. I mean, to me, the ACC basketball tournament's still a big deal. I mean, I'm an SCC guy because I'm a Gamecock, and and that's the conference we're in. But I can't deny my past. I can't deny my childhood. And um, and my childhood consisted of trips to Greensboro even after the Gamecocks left the ACC. The ACC basketball tournament was must-see TV for me and my generation. And nobody else in the SCC except Missouri have cross-pollinated. <laughs> yeah, uh, A&M would be. I mean, and now we got a lot of expansion now with Oklahoma and Texas and whatnot. But I'm talking about in the early days of transitioning into the SEC, it was hard for the older donors, I think, to just forget and just kind of put in the dark, hey, remember those good old days of, um, you know, the, the, the McGuire teams of the ACC tournament? So, so when, when the guys at Garnet Trust go to see a 70-year-old man who just sold his business for $50 million, and he wants to be benevolent to the University of South Carolina, I, I, they tell me that that comes up. How much of this is going to basketball? Well, I mean, uh, very little. We're trying to be competitive in a football league where football drives the train. Well, let me tell you about in, in my younger days, you know, going to the old Carolina Coliseum, going to Greensboro to the ACC basketball tournament. And I'm not saying it's a negative, but I think it's a reality that USC as a member of the SEC has to deal with that nobody else um, has to deal with at all. In other words, if you go to Alabama and raise money for a collective and they find out you're spending money on basketball, they'll probably, I don't think they'd publicly hang you, but I mean, it'd be close. 
You know, if you go to LSU and say, hey, we took 20% of the NIL money and played the, paid the basketball team so we could be better at basketball, <laughs> but they'd feed you to the Gators in the Bayou. They'd say, oh, that, that's nice. That's cute. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> but don't ever do that again because <laughs> right. we'll feed you to the Gators in the, in the, in the Bayou. And I think, I think the University of South Carolina is kind of cross <laughs> I mean, it, it's a little bit half pregnant. I, I, that's weird. And I don't think it's with your kids or my kids. I mean, when I start telling my kids about the basketball stories of the Greensboro Coliseum of the ACC basketball tournament, they're like, okay, okay. <laughs> yep, yep. Let, let's move along, Dad. I'm tired of hearing about those old stories when you walk to school uphill both ways and you guys were in the ACC and, and basketball meant something. But I talked to the guys that run the collective and they tell me, when they're talking to an older generation of fan, it inevitably comes up. Hmm. Um, how much of this money is going to basketball? I mean, in my opinion, none. Not a bit. You know, we'll lose in basketball to win in football. Clemson, um, you know, kind of deals in that just the opposite. They're stuck in a basketball league. So when Clemson, I mean, they're having a good year this year, and there's no shame to losing on the road at Miami and at home against North Carolina. Um, I mean, they, you know, they're they're a good basketball team. Um Newsflash, the Gamecocks need Clemson to be pretty good. That's the only blemish on their schedule, and that would be a quality loss on the road if Clemson continues forward um, having a good year. Kind of just unique the way the net ratings. Anyway, uh, I'll hush and we'll move to politics, but to my Gamecock brethren, I'm, I'm just hearing some of that when our collective guys go out and try to raise money amongst the older graduates and contributors and those people who have you know, got to the winter of life and they made some money and they're sold to business or, or, you know, kind of slowing down, got some money, want to be benevolent, want to support the university. And, you know, I doubt very seriously that question comes up at Alabama <laughs> or Auburn or, you know, Georgia or LSU for that matter. I'm sure it does at Kentucky. Um, and apparently it does a little bit at USC. Take a break. Back in a few. Text Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Our number, someone is on the phone. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. Hey, Ken, you had, did you have um, a segment about January 6th on Friday? I waited for your call. You never <laughs> called. I didn't want to steal your thunder. Yeah, make, make your statement. Yeah, I didn't want to steal your thunder. I kept, I was Williams calling? I mean, I, sure, I expected to hear from you Friday. Hey, um, all Jack Smith's got to do is put Ivanka on the stand. She went down, went down there three times in the cafeteria while he was sitting there watching on TV. It wouldn't do nothing. All he got to do is put him on the stand, ask him what, what he, was, he was doing on January 6th. The White House lawyer said he didn't want to stop that. So he'd be guilty, guilty. Guilty. Hey, um, what about the job report? I didn't get that on Friday. What that look like? I waited on you again. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to steal your thunder. I mean, I want you to be loud and proud about the jobs report from ADP and the uh, and the report on January sixth. Yeah, what's up with that? It was like another great job report. I don't know if I'd go as I don't know if I'd go as far as great. I, I read that they they revised the 2023 numbers down about 400 and something thousand jobs that they overstated ne over nearly the course a half of the million. year. Ne nearly a half yeah, million hey. jobs. <laughs> it's great, man. 
If you want a job, you can get a job. Well, Williams, if well, everybody so. agrees with you, then Joe Biden doesn't have anything to worry about. <laughs> He'll be president well, again in 2024. Hey, hey, Jake Smith got him. All you got to do is ask his daughter. His daughter going to put the nail in the coffin. Have a good day. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate that. <laughs> and I did see Vivek Ramaswamy. He tweeted on Saturday his statement about January 6th was Happy Entrapment Day. Well, let's ask this question. I thought about putting this on Facebook yesterday, but it was the Sabbath. And I didn't want to, you know, get aggressive on the <laughs> Sabbath. Um, despite what the Jews say, Sunday is the Sabbath. Um, if if we believed, the majority of Americans have formed an opinion about January 6th, right? Williams has an opinion. I'm not changing his mind. I've got an opinion. You're not changing my mind. Josh, Rev, our callers, our listeners, everybody nearly in America somewhat politically in tuned has an opinion about January 6th. I'm not here to try and change your mind. Um, I know what I believe. I'm very comfortable and confident in my, you know, understanding of the situation. I, I got to believe that Williams is comfortable and confident in his um, take on what happened January 6th. Here's, here's the question I'd pose, and it is hypothetical. I'll preface the question by saying, what if, whatever your opinion is of January 6th, what if you found out beyond a shadow of a doubt that FBI assets had disguised themselves as Trump supporters and infiltrated, you know, the, the, the rambunctious rioters? Would that change your opinion? I mean, Rev's got an opinion. Josh has an opinion. I have an opinion. Um, I mean, I, I believe that happened. Uh, and I go back to Christopher Ray. I'll try to find it this morning. Ray refused to answer that question. Um, and now the, the Republicans are doing some investigating. And I mean, this will be as part of Jack Smith's hearing. And I mean, there'll be a lot of discovery. And, and I'm reading in some places now. I mean, this is a, a little smoke. I'm not saying there's fire there. I'm I'm offering up that question in the hypothetical. What if we find out that the FBI had assets and the assets were were disguised as Trump supporters and they egged on some of the events of January 6th? Would that change your mind about what happened on that bad day in uh, in the Capitol? That that's kind of I mean I wanted to put that I want to hear what other people think about that because everybody. It's kind of made a decision. You put that to bed. I'm just baked in the cake. I'll say this. Um, I said in the last segment, after we got finished talking about the ACC glory days and, you know, Gamecock Nation kind of half pregnant with one conference and, uh, and some of the older supporters of Gamecock um, and Nation. But the, I believe, Josh, in 2023 when I said there's no way Trump can talk about January 6th and the 2020 election and be as formidable as if he were to not talk about it at all. I'm not sure I'm right anymore. But there's something out there that leads me to believe that people have, uh, once again, they formed their opinions about January 6th. They formed their opinion about um, 2020 and the and the election, you know, what happens, statistical anomalies, the election was stolen, whatever, whatever characterization you want to give to those two, I felt that Trump was in a better place if he let them be, hey, Donald, don't talk about January 6th. Hey, Donald, don't talk about the 2020 election. Let's talk about inflation, the cost of groceries, um, the state of the economy. I know Williams celebrates the jobs numbers. The economy sucks. 
I mean, the American people aren't going to be misled that bad. They'll be misled, but that bad. I mean, they know what it what has happened to the to the economy. I read something over the weekend about insurance companies and you seventy five percent increases. Uh, they're asking insurance agents, or excuse me, they're asking insurance um, commissions in certain states for the right to raise rates forty, fifty, sixty percent. They're getting denied in some states. Other states like California, they're being you know. It's climate change. I mean, it's all about extreme weather as a result of of climate change. But what if, I mean, what if you as a fair-minded man or woman found out, once again, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if it was unequivocally proven that there were FBI assets disguised as Trump supporters that had infiltrated the events of January 6th, would that change how you feel? Would that change your perspective. This probably get the right audience to ask that. The Facebook or Twitter sphere would be a, I don't know, a um, a more rounded representation of what people feel. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jason and Marion. Good morning. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Dave. Um, I got two things on a not so niche serious note this morning, and I kind of want to get your take on the, the second one. But the first one, have you seen the the new Dave Chappelle Netflix special? I have not. Okay. Well, anyway, there's a he opens up with a a very amazing story of Jim Carrey and when his father passed away and how he always wanted to be Jim Carrey and it's if you just go search it on YouTube it's 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 up. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you'll get a, you'll probably get a good laugh out of that. And that's why uh, they the try to cancel. That's why they try to cancel him, don't they? Yeah. But the second thing is, um, you might have talked about this Friday, but I I didn't get a chance to listen as much as I could. What was going on down there in South Florida where um, they had this big old uh, law enforcement at this mall, and supposedly the people, there was reports of these, I mean, I can't, I mean, it sounds almost preposterous to even, you know, say it, but they said there was these beans or creatures or something, and then all the videos that were people had taken you can't even find them anymore do you know anything I mean, have you been able to find out anything about that and i mean this is very strange i mean over 200 law enforcement officers i think they said it, it was just very strange do you know anything more about that i know about what you just said i mean that, that your, your synopsis is about the extent of what of what i know something unexplained happened they believe some of the information had been scrubbed some of the reporting has not been followed up on some government agencies got involved and you know i, I don't know i mean I, I, I know as much you you just explained it probably better than i could you know as much as i do jason okay well thanks i hope something that, that, yeah that's very i heard about that over the uh, i think it was thursday or whatever day that was and i was just like what in the world so i tried to do a little bit of digging but i couldn't find anything thank you yeah i read i read about 10 foot tall aliens or something yeah. it was yeah a little strange well, uh, let's. I mean, probably some of the um, Ken people from the Lizard Man is, is <laughs> yeah. kind of what I'm thinking. I mean, you it know? could be um, the um, the second coming of the Lizard people <laughs> um, down down in Florida. Uh, we're talking about competency and doing the job and not doing the job. I know we got to take a break here. Do we have a call? Let's take a break. We'll come back and take the call on the other side. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. You folks are wide awake this morning. Phones ringing at about. On 6.15, 6 o'clock, 6.30 this morning. Take a break. Back in a few. 
843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Danny and Camden. Good morning, Danny. You're on. Hey, uh, y'all was talking about uh, January 6th things. If y'all will go to epochtimes.com, bro, they got a January 6th thing, and Kim was probably talking about it. Uh, FBI agents, minimum 200 between the outside and the inside of the Capitol, not, th- not to mention those across the country that was acting it on. It's there. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, I've heard a lot of reporting. I've heard nothing confirmed. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of reporting. There's a member of Congress, and I go back to, I think, the most valid <sighs> substantiator. You ready for a new word? Substantiator of the storyline or the narrative that the FBI assets were involved in the January 6th um, riot gone too rowdy was um, when Christopher Ray refused to answer the question um, asked of him by a Republican on that, um, that, that would have been in the oversight committee. Now that was under Democrat leadership. That would have been prior to the Republicans. Now nah, probably uh, that would have been close. I can't remember exactly, but I'll try to find that, that clip so you can hear it. I mean, I know there, there's a lot of stories out in the conservative media that say they've got the goods on the FBI and 200 and 300. Uh, n- none of that can be substantiated. And I don't want to get in the room. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine speculating. I mean, I don't have any problem, but let's call it what it is. I mean, let, let's not say the Epic Times has proof or, or Wake Up Carolina has solid evidence. But what um, we do have are more of the videos have been released. Not all of them, but more videos have been released that appear to show and back up some of those claims. But I think the fairest way to offer the question is preface it with, uh, you know, in, in the scenario of hypothetical or in a hypothetical scenario, Let's say that we find out over time, and maybe we find out in some of this investigation because some of the Jack Smith charges, um, I mean, when you read the charges, conspiracy against rights, conspiracy to obstruct a, an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct a, an official proceeding. I mean, if, if we have discovery in some of these cases, we're going to get more facts, right? I mean, it's going to not be just some conservative media report or a liberal media report talking about how crazy it is that conservatives even believe that. So I'm offering, in the, in the spirit of fairness, I'm offering the, the argument, do I believe that? Yes. I mean, I do believe that there were a certain number of FBI assets that were disguising themselves as Trump voters. You know why I believe that, Josh? Because why that's that? an easy question for Christopher Ray to say no. I mean, he's in that there. Of course not. I mean, any FBI director that knows that to be untrue under oath should say, of course, that's not true. I mean, we can argue about insurrection or we can argue about obstructing a proceeding. We can argue about who did what and when and where and how and, you know, and we can argue about the four. I mean, all of that is legitimate. I mean, that, that, that we'll never stop having those debates. But when an FBI director is asked point blank under oath, were there any FBI assets or agents, same thing, involved in the, you know, the egging on of the events January 6th and were they disguised as Trump supporters? And Ray said, I can't comment on any official uh, investigation. Yeah. He could have said, we'll put this to bed to get uh, right that, now. That's the only answer. Yep. But that's the reason I'm, I'm posing the question. He refused to answer what, what appeared to be kind of a layup. I mean, if you're a member of Congress and you ask an FBI director, hey, we're talking about this, um, we're talking about this situation that half the country calls an insurrection. 
and the other half don't feel good about it. But but we've got some reports out there from conservative media. You know the oddballs, the conspiracy theorists. They out there. They're out there promulgating a theory that maybe just maybe the FBI had a hand in this. Surely you can put that bed today, right now, in this instance. And he said, can't answer that question. I mean, why, why shouldn't you speculate if he refuses to answer that question? So my posing of the hypothetical is not as a result of reading an article at the Epic Times or reading an article in Breitbart or reading an article in the American Conservative or the National Review. It's, it's because the FBI director himself not in a press conference, not not in a um, a photo op, but rather under oath, with fear penalty of perjury, chose to just take a pass on answering what you and I, Rev and Josh, would consider to be somewhat of an obvious an obvious question. He didn't do that. Now, now I'm going to go back to something that I said earlier, and and we can go down this road if you'd like on a on a Monday morning. I would have pulled my hair out if I'm managing or consulting for Trump or offering strategy and and advice to Donald Trump if he started talking about the 2020 election or started talking about the events of January 6th. I mean, to me, it's it, it's leave the election alone and apologize for the role you may or may not have played in January 6th. You learned a hard lesson on that day that people pay close attention to what you say, and maybe you peddled fantasy, and maybe you motivated people to do some things that they and we all regret. I mean, to me, that would have been the line that wins the Seinfeld voter in some of these swing states. I'm not so damn sure. I'm serious. I'm not so sure that he can't talk about January 6th somewhat unapologetically and get away with it. I mean, I really do. I mean, I've, I've read some of the polling. Um, George Stephanopoulos is pulling his, um, his his hair out. I mean, Stephanopoulos is known for his his um, his do. So um, Stephanopoulos yesterday was talking about, he's talking to some Republican, obviously, who condemns the events and said it was an insurrection. I mean, they'll find a Republican or two or three to parade out on Sunday morning, some of these shows. But Stephanopoulos kept talking about, well, why do more people today uh, dispute that January 6th was an insurrection? Why do more people today believe that maybe, just maybe, some of the organized forces had something to do with this? Some of the insiders, some of what we would refer to as the cathedralist. Um, and yet Stephanopoulos is just beside himself in why won't these people do what we tell them to do? <laughs> they always have until now. I mean, we've always been able to trick these people into, into not believing their, their, you know, what is true and right before uh, their eyes, but rather our narrative and our, our situating of the evidence and the, and the storyline. And thank, it's just thank not you, Elon Musk, by the way, well, I, mean, I just, I'm telling you, I just feel like there's a way. And it's going to be so much fun to watch Trump talk about January 6th and the election and and not in a primary. I mean, we know it doesn't hurt him in a primary, right? And, and I think the three of us would rather January 6th not have happened. But we're not going to, to deny some of them. Um, we're not going to accept the, the, the mainstream media's narrative. I guess that's the best way to say it. And if the mainstream media's narrative, I mean, you knew Sunday morning, that's what, those shows were going to be about. I mean, forget the defense secretary, you know, where, where, where's, where's Lloyd Austin? I don't know. Well, I mean, Biden doesn't know who he is anyway. He said, what, what the, is up with that's that? That's that guy that runs the joint. I mean, he basically said, you know what Biden said? You ready? You ready for a Monday morning? Biden basically said, hey, where's the big black guy that runs that thing? <laughs> that diversity hire we did. Well, where's the big black guy that runs the defense department? I mean, yeah, that, that's him. Yeah, that, there you go. There you go right there. 
They never called him by his name. He didn't know his damn name. The guy was in the ICU for like three or four days. Some complications from an elective surgery. I got no idea what they got. He didn't tell anybody. He knew about the Pentagon, told the White House. I mean, how is Lloyd Austin, if that's the case, how is Lloyd Austin still the defense secretary? Right. I mean, if he went rogue and, 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 and had some elective surgery, had a complication, went to the um, intensive care unit and never let anybody know. And the Pentagon, I mean, we're, we're supporting Israel. We're that's, supporting, that's a matter of national security. What? I mean, it's, it's crazy. But it shows you that Biden's not running the joint. And nobody believes Biden's running the joint because somebody in the Pentagon, if they thought they were dealing with a well-incompetent president, somebody in the Pentagon would have said, hey, you better let the president know. I mean, we, we, you know, I mean he went to get whatever. I mean, I don't have any idea what, what kind of elective surgery would, would, uh, would a man his age got. I don't have any idea. I'm not going to speculate on that. Don't know. Don't care to know. But he had a complication. The second he has a complication, how do you not let the White House know that he's going to have elective surgery? But they didn't. You know why they didn't? Because they don't believe the guy's coherent. They don't believe he's in charge. The better question, did Lloyd Austin let Barack Obama know? Hmm. That's the better question. Did Lloyd Austin, before he went and had elective surgery that ended in some sort of complication that required him being in intensive care for several days, did Lloyd Austin let the real president know? Not the president in the White House. (laughs) but President Barack Hussein Obama. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. One thing that retirement does not exclude you from or shield you from is congressional oversight. Today, I think it is transcribed. I don't think it's a public hearing, but in a transcribed hearing, um, Dr. Anthony Fauci will testify about COVID origins, I guess some of the U.S. pandemic response, Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us this morning. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you, sir? I am doing well. So this is Dr. Fauci's first appearance before a Republican-controlled House. Is that correct? That is absolutely right. Yes, sir. What are we trying to find out, Ryan? Well, I think there's a number of issues that they're going to try uh, try to find out. A memo that we were sent said that COVID origins will be on the table. Uh, public narratives about natural immunities and therapeutics will be on the table. Uh, COVID-19 deaths and classifying and how they were classified uh, and explaining the science behind lockdowns and social closures. That's just a, a couple of the things that we were given because we're expecting over 200 pages of questioning, uh, approximately about 100 exhibits related to Dr. Fauci's role as the face of America's COVID-19 response. Uh, And then also we're expecting this to go for about 14 hours over a two-day span. So there's a number of topics that could be pressed here. But, Ryan, none of this will be made – I mean, none of the hearing will be public. Am I right? The the transcripts will be made public eventually. Correct. Yes, the the transcripts will eventually be made public. But then we are also expecting Dr. Fauci to to most likely testify – uh, in front of a, a committee with the cameras there uh, in a public setting down the road. So this is kind of what Republicans have usually done with a lot of these interviews. Think Hunter Biden and some other high-profile names they brought in. Usually when they're doing an investigation, they bring somebody in for a closed-door deposition first, and then they let them come and testify publicly at a later date. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. Uh, you too. Thank you so much. The one thing that I read over the weekend um, – I think it was in the New York Times or the Washington Post, one of those, um, you know, Fauci defenders 
But they were talking about, remember the, um, ah, the proximal origin document that Fauci recited from a podium, and it basically, uh, it was to disprove the lab leak theory. I mean, it, this was a, uh, it was, it was kind of a natural uh, happening. It was not lab leak. It was not from the Wuhan Institute or Wuhan Virology Lab, but rather, and what Fauci didn't do, guys, and this is, I think, where they'll drill pretty deep in this. When Fauci quoted um, the proximal origin publication, he didn't disclose his participation. But he cited, he quoted, um, he, he basically expressed his, his support of that, but he didn't, he didn't make known, disclose, I guess, his involvement in prompting uh, this publication to be made public. In other words, Fauci had a narrative. And the narrative was, this is not a lab leak. I mean, there's no way this would have happened because if it's a lab leak, all of a sudden you got gain of function and the funding of gain of function. So, I mean, I, I would imagine some of the more serious conversation, I mean, there'll be political points. Don't, don't mean, you know, Fauci will try to score some. Uh, the Democrats will do their thing. The Republicans will do their thing. But, but I want to hear or I want to read some of the debates centered on this proximal origin publication that was to disprove the conspiracy theorists and wacko believe that this could have been a lab leak theory. I say somewhat sarcastically when we now know odds are it was a lab leak. I mean, there, there's a much better chance now. And even the, even the medical community says this, the community of virologists say that this looks like a lab leak. So the lab leak theory was, was and Fauci, the last thing he wanted was this to be a lab leak because he funded a lot of the gain of function, we believe that he received financial benefit. We know some of the uh, researchers did at the um, at the National Health of In- National Institute of Health. Uh, we know some of the researchers got private funds from pharmaceutical companies in the name of you know um, research done. But um, but but if 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 the proximal origin document it had, had Fauci said, hey. We've got this publication that we want to introduce that we believe contradicts some of the lab leak theory, and I'm the one that participated in publishing and promoting and advocating for this. I think he's probably okay, but he introduced the proximal origin publication without letting anybody know that he was a big part of this. And the reason he's a big part of this, Rev, is he didn't need the lab leak theory to gain traction or have any legs because that kind of brings into the debate gain of function, and we know how much money Fauci provided to the Chinese uh, Wuhan Virology Lab in the name of gain of function. So, I mean, that's some of the seriousness of what we're trying to find out, COVID origin, um, and, and, you know, were we or were we not funders of some of the gain of function research in Wuhan? Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, this all goes into, we, we sit here, or at least I do. I listen to radio. I try to be informed. And, and I try to have a little fun, you know, poke fun at different people and, and, and try to be informative at the same time. But our government has lied to us from day one, and a lot of the things they're lying to us about, affects the world economy. 
you know, like you were talking earlier, they just had to say, oh, we we made up 435,000 jobs in, I think it was November, just made them up. So that affects the, the Treasury, how it, um, the Fed does the interest rates, and that affects the bonds and the, the you know, all the, the money policies worldwide. People don't understand the world looks to us for leadership. And when they're constantly being lied to, we're shaking the, uh, the understanding and stability of the world economy because if they don't believe America, we're, we're messed up. And I think this is what they're trying to do. I mean, they came out of the gate lying about Afghanistan. We had a, an airstrike on a Houthi whatever last week, and Austin's in the hospital in ICU, and he's, he said he made a mistake by not telling. No, he lied. They said he was working from home. He's in ICU. That's a lie. Now, the Fed's creating policy over, you know, they created all these jobs, and most of them went to the federal government. You know, people don't realize this, but about one out of every six jobs now is a either state, local, federal job. I mean, it's, it's getting to the point where it's going to be so big that this fire is going to consume us and it's not going to be funny anymore. But, you know, that's my two cents worth. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. See, and that goes back to some of the commentary in the first hour. And, I, I mean, I need, I need to get awake and aware and, and, and back in the groove a bit. I watched a lot of football over the weekend. I uh, read a lot about Kale Yarborough over the weekend. I mean, I didn't pay close attention to politics. It takes me an hour or two to kind of get back in the groove and catch up and formulate some of these um unbelievably important opinions that I add to the debate. Um. The one thing I read over the weekend, and I want you guys to jump in, and we'll go to the phone in two seconds. Stick with me. I, I read a story over the weekend about Mark Zuckerberg and his wife building a $270 million compound in Hawaii. And part of the compound is about $100 million, some sort of a shelter. And, like and, an underground bunker I mean, yeah, is what I read. Yeah, it's a bunker, and it's got food, and it's got power, and it's got water filtering systems. And it's, I mean, it's basically... I mean, it would have been an upscale prepper. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what it is. It would have been, uh, you know, you know, the people that store the food in the pantries and bury a drum in the yard. And, I mean, they, you know, they don't have a billion bucks laying around. And if you've got a billion bucks, you play by different rules. I mean, that's just the way the orderly system in America works now. If you've got a billion bucks, you do kind of what you want to do. Um, and he's got a billion bucks. He's got multiple billions of dollars. But he's spending about $270 million on this huge compound and about $100 million of the $270 million is being invested in, what if? I mean, what if this is the end times? What if something crazy would happen to put me and my family at risk? All the money in the world can't protect. Well, it can. I mean, all the money in the world can protect you and your family better than, you know, the working stiff on on uh, on the tobacco harvester or the, the construction work of the roofer or whatnot. But here's what, I mean, there, there's so much more there. You know what Mark Zuckerberg is basically telling all of us? He knows that the world is run by useful idiots. I mean, why would Zuckerberg spend $100 million on some sort of underground shelter to keep he and his family safe 
if indeed people are stupid enough to do something like, you know, nuclear Armageddon or or just not responsible enough to effectively govern the most powerful nation man has ever known. Mark Zuckerberg's in a position to know. And Mark Zuckerberg doesn't spend a hundred million dollars of his money to build an underground bunker if he thinks governments are run by competent, smart people. He knows they're useful idiots. They're his useful idiots. They're Wall Street's useful idiots. They're the military-industrial complex's useful idiots. And Mark Zuckerberg is putting his money where his mouth is. He's telling you as loudly as he can, don't trust these dumbasses. I don't care how many degrees they have from Harvard. They don't know what they're doing, and they don't know what they're doing to such an extreme that I'm spending $100 million to make sure when these useful idiots do blow it up, See, Zuckerberg knows. Remember, some of the callers say they know exactly what they're doing. Zuckerberg knows exactly what he's doing. Jamie Dimon knows exactly what he's doing. The, the schmuck elected in the ninth district of the Long Island, New York Congress depends on these people to get elected. He doesn't know. He's the useful idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's being played. He's not anywhere near smart. He's not anywhere near as... Uh, intelligent, but he's got a lot of influence. He is a member of Congress, but he doesn't work on behalf of the people of the United States of America. He does Zuckerberg's bidding. He does Wall Street's bidding. He does Raytheon's bidding. They know exactly what they're doing. And Zuckerberg says to the tune of $100 million, these useful idiots are probably going to goof it up one of these days. And I want to be in better shape than most because I can. Most people don't have $100 million bucks to build an underground bunker. So Zuckerberg is telling you loudly and clearly that the world is not run by smart and competent people. And I'm talking about the body politic. I'm not talking about the, the you know, the ruling class, the cathedral. I mean, they're the ones that, they're the puppet masters. And when the puppet masters start building $100 million underground bunkers, you better listen to what they're telling you. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. It's almost like the evil genius of the James Bond thing. The difference is that Zuckerberg knows the chaos is going to sue because he and the rest of the cathedral dang old planned it that way, kid. He's setting up, a, he's, setting up he's jumping in a hole because he just threw a stick of dynamite and he knows he's getting ready to go off. And you know, the thing that gets me about these leftists, my oldest son, as you know, he, he just likes watching comedies. So we were forced to, yes, we watched one with him. And so in the scene, you got Barbara Streisand picking old Robert Nadero, two extreme leftists, about him wearing a boob and breastfeeding his grandson. You got Dustin Hoffman talking at the table how the CIA is corrupt and that the government and all governments are corrupt and, and tyrannical. And that was in 2004. What changed all these leftists to where now that they believe the CIA? And they believe all this stuff. You know, there's no doubt that the FBI was involved in January 6th. But here's my question, kids. What if January 6th wouldn't have happened? Sort of like, what if Donald Trump wouldn't have happened? January 6th was another unveiling, pulling back the curtain and showing us how corrupt our government is, how corrupt our media is, how gullible people are with a D beside their name and an R beside their name. If I can do anything at all, I want to convince people that you can't trust the Republicans or the Democrats. 
Sydney. You could be poor old Williams in Orangeburg, or you could be be over here about Blaze Pleasant. We were all getting screwed by the entire cathedral apparatus, and it just appears to me that everybody's content that they're going to get screwed by the apparatus. And they, you know, it's, it's, it's just uh, amazing to me. I don't think you can change a lot of minds, but I'm hoping we can change some people's minds to realize that we're dealing with good versus evil, and you better be careful about the guys that have a R today, just like you are about the guys with a D as you know today, regardless of what political party you try to associate yourself with. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Thank you, Josh, for the uh, the, the green lighting the voice man to be as insulting as he possibly can early Monday morning. When we're trying our dead level best. Get <laughs> yeah. away, get aware, do the job required of us. Whether or not Thank it's you. true. Thank you for being... <laughs> Uh, so encouraging, Mr. Voice <laughs> that, Man. That one's been in the rotation for a while, and yeah. I appreciate how every time it plays, you guys still, I hear Dave chuckle, and you usually comment it's on it. It's a good it, one. So. It's a good one. Yeah. It's a good it's one. Funny. Now, I'd like to know. Who gives the green light on, on those voices? Josh. That would be me. Yeah. That's right. That's he, right. That's he's right. the producer. Yep. Now, I will say, I, the other day he said, hey, I'm sending some new stuff to the voice guy. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but we'll find out, I guess. None of it flattering. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure. Fair enough. I would expect nothing we else. We don't deserve flattery. <laughs> um, so let me get this straight. You're talking about Zuckerberg. And this, to you, is more than him just saying, you know, I'm, I'm a billionaire, so I can do what I want. I can have what I want. I can, you know, a billionaire prepper setup is going to be this bunker. You think there's there's more to it than that? Oh, now, just because think, he's not doing it just because he can. I think you've got to be a moron to not understand the chaotic and contrarian nature of our world right now. I mean, I can't speak for France and Germany and Italy. I read about some of those governments, the uncertainty of the governments, the debt, the chaos, um, some of the uncertainty. Uh, The world is a very fragile place as we speak. It seems to me, Reb, that some of the contrarian, conspiracy theorist-oriented governments are more popular than they've ever been. Um, On one extreme, you've got Zuckerberg investing, what, $450 million Dollars of his own money to get a dunce selected. Once he gets the dunce selected, he goes, "Oh crap! I mean, I got a dunce selected now. I better spend a hundred million to make sure this dunce doesn't do anything, you know, out of the norm." It, it really goes back That's to crazy. Well, I mean, it, and, and, it, and it's, it's it's great for minding your business, but we live in a very chaotic political period right now. I mean, we're just we're existing in a revolutionary era in American politics, and I think very often some of these wealthy um, I don't want to say tyrants. Well, I mean, they're cathedralists. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. Zuckerberg would be a cathedralist. If, if the cathedral had a meeting and invited his top 25, I mean, he would be there. The $450 million to defeat Trump, you know, in whatever way, shape, or form. I mean, that's his, that's his badge of honor. That's his blue ribbon. That's the reason that Zuckerberg, and let's be honest, it was ingenious. I mean, it was brilliant. You don't, you don't try to, you know, pay people to rig elections. You pay p- election commissions to yeah, make sure people vote more frequently than they normally and historically have. That's why I refuse to say they stole it. I mean, that, Trump says they stole it. I refuse to say they stole it. They spent $450 million to make sure every 
single Democrat ballot that could possibly be rounded up was rounded up and counted. Legitimately, illegitimately, I would imagine there's always elections with legitimate and illegitimate uh, ballots cast. I mean, that's always the case. We've never had a perfect election. I mean, there are always hustlers, precinct hustlers that play this way and play that way. But there's never been a, a movement funded in the way Zuckerberg funded the American Center for Tech and Civic Life, and they won the gold medal. I mean, they, they overperformed in some of these Democrat precincts that historically had voted, what, 69, 68, 70, 71, maybe in the best of times. I think Obama in some of these precincts, some of these heavily African-American precincts, I mean, it was 72, 3, 4%. I mean, that's unheard of. It's normally 66, 67, 68. So when you got a seven-point overvoting of African-Americans, but you've got an African-American candidate, you go, okay, I get that. I mean, that would be reasonable. That's not that big a statistical anomaly. But when Biden runs and overperforms Biden, I mean, excuse me, over, overperforms Obama, you know, by by eight or 10 or 11 percentage points in some of these heavily African-American precincts, you kind of scratch your head and say, is he that good? I mean, was Biden that good a, uh, a candidate? I mean, that good a campaigner? I mean, did he inspire that many to po- vote? Were, was there that much enthusiasm? I mean, I understand Obama. I think you understand Obama. You don't like it. I don't like it. But I tip the hat, you know, where, where the hat deserves to be tipped. I mean, the guy's really good at politics. Extremely, extremely effective at, um, at getting done some of the things he wants to turn America into. But when Biden overperforms Obama by 8, 9, 10 percentage points with African-American voters, I mean, you know, the, the college dropout from a town with no stoplight kind of scratches his head. And, Duh, okay. I don't understand that. But but anyway, I don't want to say the – so I don't think the election was quote-unquote stolen. I think it was bought. And I think Zuckerberg paid a steep price, and he got the guy elected uh, that we thought – well, I mean, I don't know that they ever thought it was going to restore order. And this really goes back to the restoration of order or not. I don't think the American people today – are looking for the restoration of order. I mean, I, I just don't. I think that was a mistake made by the political establishment. This will be a fit and a rage, a brush fire, one of those moments in history that we look back on and say, whew, that was, that was crazy, but we got out of that. No, I, that's, that goes back to my comments about why I believe Trump can talk about January 6th and, and, um, and the election. I, I do. I just think people have adapted. I think they've evolved. I think they look at Trump now Remember Friday when I said, and you said, mm, okay, I, I might buy that. Remember when I said that Ramaswamy softens Trump up a little bit? Mm-hmm. Some of the so aggressive things he says, it's not out of the norm now. People in Josh's generation, that'll be normal. I mean, my, my daughter tells me now, I, I want to like DeSantis, but he bores me. I want to like Haley, but she bores me. Trump's the only person interesting. Ramaswamy's the only person interesting. I mean, it's going to be, and so we've moved. I mean, we, we, we've always argued that in the debate of liberal conservative, the liberals have won that fundamental debate. I mean, America is a more liberal nation today than it was. I mean, Obama ran opposed to same-sex marriage in 2008. So 16 years ago, I mean, the, the, the fundamental center of the nation has been moved. But I think the mistake the left is making and the mistake the, the establishment in particular making is how how ready and willing and able to accept chaos and contrary to controversy the American electorate are. I just don't think the American people 
have much of an appetite getting business back to normal. I think they look at business back to normal and they say, well, I mean, that wasn't working. I'm not sure Trump's the answer, but, but you know, maybe we need a little more chaos. Maybe we need a little more contrarian. Um, the Wall Street Journal ran an article over the weekend um, basically bringing up some <sighs> situations Elon Musk found himself in, and they basically began the article. And, and you know, I mean, it's a hit job is what it is, and I don't know who paid for it. Did NASA pay for it? Did Ford and GM pay for it? Did Toyota pay for it? I mean, it, it's it's really, you can, you can read the article and say and tell, you know, people were, people from the Wall Street Journal were trying to, ah, marginalize Elon Musk as a drug user and unstable. I mean, forget that he's delivered 80% of the, you know, the, 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 the outer space cargo in the last, in the last three or four years. And it's basically revolutionizing the EV sector of the automobile industry. I mean, he smokes weed and he does mushrooms and he does some other things. You can't trust that guy. If you're an investor, it'd be unwise to go down that road. Well, I mean, Musk is a contrarian. And if you're in charge, guess what you don't want? You don't want contrarians. Guess what in particular you don't want? You don't want contrarians with a billion bucks. Because if you're a billionaire, you play by a different set of rules. And if you're a billionaire and a contrarian, nobody tells you what to say, what to do, who to be, who, who you know, what not to be. And I, I just think that that's what it seems to me. Now, I could be wrong. I mean, we'll find out in November. But that's why I think Trump wins. And I think he can talk about January 6th. And I think he can talk about the 2020 election because I think the people that we've historically given credence to, I never said we trusted them emphatically and we had unwavering trust in the media, unwavering trust in our, um, you know, in our elected officials. I think we have very little faith in the media, very little faith. And I think because of that, chaos ensues. And here we are. And Trump is a chaos candidate. And we're in a chaos period of time. And I think he's the man for the moment. And I think, as I said last year, I didn't believe he could win talking about the 2020 election. I didn't believe he could win talking about January 6th. I've changed my mind. I think he can win talking about January 6th. I think he can win talking about the 2020 election. Now, I think he's better talking about the failures of Biden, inflation, the economy, uh, some of the realities that, you know, America, immigration, I think would be a better deal. But I don't think, I don't think Trump... I mean, I never thought I'd say, I don't think Trump talking about January 6th hurts him much. I mean, I know it doesn't hurt him in a primary. You know, we'll, we'll find the body of work eventually down the road when he becomes the, um, you know, the, uh, the Republican nominee. But, but I, I just, I talk to too many independent-minded voters that aren't politically inclined. And, and they all believe that something happened in 2020 you can't explain. And they all believe that January 6th is not all they trumped it up to be. No pun intended. <laughs> Let's uh let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break, Josh. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning. Hey, sir. How you doing? Um, first of all, Ken, uh, you talked about earlier about well, I believe last week about what we have to do. It's the media, man. This uh, Trump said it. By us not having our own media, we're fighting a losing battle. I was just looking at how um the O. J. Simpson trial, the uh Floyd trial. And they had it on TV broadcasting it, but for the Epstein trial, the woman, I forgot her name, his um his female pimp, they didn't have that trial open to the public. 
And other than more than that, then they started redacting names off of the list of people that's on, on the call log. Now, who has the power? Obviously, whoever has the power is kind of guilty or has friends that's guilty. But we don't have a free, open media. We fighting a losing battle. And my last thing is, I know I usually go home this this time right here. Oh, that Miami, Florida thing. They, they say there will be distractions coming up to get our mind off of what's really going on for the election and stuff. The alien stuff, it might be a distraction, but I'm going to tell you something too I heard, that there is another Joe Biden. If you ever noticed, he hasn't been slipping up lately. He hasn't been falling. He hasn't been doing It's two Joe Biden. It's a, a lookalike. But my last thing is, Ken, and I'm going to leave you all along with this right here. What if all of this stuff with Trump, as far as the court cases, off the ballot, he on the ballot, whatever. What if he wins the popular vote and our electors, and the reason that they are our electors because they're supposed to have the, the, the know-it-all that if we make the wrong decision on who to lead us, they are there to put the right person in charge. What if they put Biden in charge, even if Trump wins the popular vote because they feel like they know better than the country? That's what them bars around the White House is for. And Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I still believe that any attempt to keep Trump off the ballot, and I wish it were like this about with any Republican candidate, but but I think Trump in particular, I mean, if they succeed, and that's why I'm just saying, I mean, I know this is unhealthy, and I get in trouble and appear to be reckless and dangerous and careless, but I think the, the alternative is more reckless and careless and dangerous, and that is to allow the status quo to get off the hook and continue to run the country. So, so if the status quo, if the cathedral, the elites, the ruling class, the managerial, whatever, I mean, however you want to call um, or whatever you want to identify that group of people as, if they figure out a way to keep Trump off the ballot, you'll have an insurrection. I mean, you will. You'll have an absolute and total moment in time where people will try to overthrow the existing government. I don't have any idea what that looks like. I mean, I couldn't begin to fathom what it looks like. But but I think to suggest that January 6th was an attempt to 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 overthrow the government, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, it, obstructing and proceeding, and I mean, I'll get into some of Jack Smith's charges here in just a bit, because there's kind of a story that very few are paying attention to. We touched on it a little bit last week, but I kind of want to, um, I mean, there's a, there's a January 6th defendant that has the ability to defend themselves financially uh, and, 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 you know, and intellectually. And they're going down a road that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. And I think it has an effect or impact on whether Smith can charge Trump for some of the D.C. charges he's charging uh, Trump with. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. The fundamental debate of where we are today, and I, mean, I think we're paying closer attention. We're a week away from the Iowa caucus and its own um, we reported this morning, I mean, I read over the weekend from fairly credible sources, actually talked to one person that has some knowledge of the DeSantis campaign, that if he underperforms in Iowa, he will suspend his campaign, drop out of the race, more likely than not endorse um, Donald Trump. I mean, that's smart if you're DeSantis. I mean, I get you tried to beat the guy, it didn't work out, but you've got a future. I mean, I, I don't think anybody that I'm looking at would find him unacceptable in 2028. I mean, I don't think. I mean, you know, I don't know where we go from Trump. I mean, you'll, you, he's kind of the original article, and he's going to be so different 
I mean, if we're looking for the next Donald Trump in 2028 or whoever the heir apparent to America first, we're going to have to settle for something different. And settle may not be the right word. It might be a better um, choice after Trump does whatever it is um, he does. But where the GOP finds itself is that it goes back to something I asked ah, six months ago of Kahaley and really Drew McKissick more than, than Robert, probably a year ago with Drew and I um, talking about it. When I argued that the voter and the donor class were in an asymmetrical relationship, I still believe that. Um, you got to ask yourself, why does a political party exist? Because I'm reading Twitter and, you know, the former Republicans who have, I mean, it would be the um, those who have abandoned the party, the party lost its way, it became a party of kooks and conspiracy theorists. Well, I mean, if the party is a party of kooks and conspiracy theorists, then it's a party of kooks and conspiracy theorists. I mean, the political party and the, and the, and the body operative, I mean, that, they don't get to decide what the, the gist of the, the millions of people who call them Republicans. I've always, I just never understood that. I mean, it's not, you don't get to say what the Republican Party is. I mean, the Republican Party is a living, breathing organism. I mean, it changes. Josh contributes. Rev contributes. I contribute. Um, uh, at least Stefanik contributes. Donald Trump contributes. Out of that comes, you know, some, some modicum of direction. In other words, we're going this way. Philosophically, we stand here. And, and, and the big losers in this chaos is, is those who don't need contrarianism to be a part of it. I mean, you've built this monster of a machine. You've advantaged yourselves unbelievably, unbelievably at the expense of this monster of a machine. And all of a sudden, a guy says, hey, I don't know that our voters like that machine much. So I'm going to run on tearing that machine apart, replacing it with something different. Well, I mean, if you help build that machine and your, your, your viability or success or sustainability is dependent upon that machine staying in place and in good working order, I mean, I get it. I understand why you would oppose Donald Trump. I absolutely understand why Jamie Dimon would oppose Donald Trump. I mean, Dimon's basically telling you publicly, I like the deal we had. You know, I, I like for politics to be predictable and con- and controllable. He's not talking about predictable. He is talking about controllable. I mean, di- you know, Jamie Dimon wouldn't mind a bit if politics surprises every now and then, if they surprise us to his advantage. And I'm picking on Dimon. I mean, it would be the Wall Streeter. It'd be corporate America, the military-industrial complex. I mean, all these subdivisions that have um, built these, I don't know, inlets or inroads or conduits to the government and, I mean, it goes back to the theory I have about what if we could build an economy where, where you know, government dictate what didn't dictate winners and losers. Everybody got their fair share. Everybody got, you know, the, the, exactly what they deserve, commiserate to what they produce, uh, a value in the economy, uh, you know, but we're not going to get there. So, so, so these people that so passionately oppose Trump, they're not, they're not opposing him because he has this weird ideology or this weird philosophy. He's not an extremist when it comes to government. He's a political contrarian. Elon Musk is a business contrarian, um, a media mogul contrarian. Peter Thiel is a contrarian. That's why the Wall Street Journal goes after Elon Musk. I mean, forget that Musk, once again, has delivered about 80% of the payload to outer space of the last 24 months with SpaceX. I mean, he's overperformed any other company like he is Forget that he's selling about 65% of all the EVs sold in the world today. 
I mean, he's the only company that can figure out how to be profitable. He smoked some weed on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he's experimented with mushrooms in his younger days. It's not that, guys. He's a contrarian, and he's a threat to the model that the Wall Street Journal is so heavily invested in and gains favor from. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, and if you're one of these insiders and you're one of these folks like, um, we're talking about Zuckerberg spending $270 million in Hawaii on some compound, $100 million will be spent to keep his family safe in case the world goes to hell in a handbasket and some, I don't know, nuclear bombs detonated or you can't find food. I mean, there's all kind of extreme uh, measures they're taking at $100 million. But it's not, it's not just Reb that it's the era of contrarianism. It's not just that. These people in power feel threatened by this movement. And, and you got to stop it because it's, it's in your financial best interest. It's in your, you know, uh, I don't know, the, the, the gig you've got going, the boat you've got afloat. It's dependent upon staying plugged in, staying connected, staying at the center of power. It's not just that. It's also an admit it's a failure. I mean, if you, if, if you kind of embrace, okay, we get it. I mean, we failed miserably. You're right. With $33 trillion in debt, I mean, you know, $890 billion defense budget, and we've not won a war since the Second World. You're right. I mean, we suck at this job. We get it. I mean, you know, we, we wave the white flag. I mean, it's a little bit, I mean, it's defiance on their side. I mean, it is, I believe the, the central motivator of the most powerful people on the planet who oppose Trump is wanting to stay in power. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And he's legitimately a threat to their power. Why? Because he brings uh, people who have been left behind to the table. Now, now, what that looks like, don't have any idea. I don't think anybody knows where, where do we go from from post-Trump or from Trump to, to post-Trump. But there's also, I mean, the Mark Espers of the world. I saw him over the weekend. He worked for Trump. I mean, he was a Trump appointee. And now he says Trump's a threat to democracy. I mean, that's basically his entire, his, it would be like, it would be, Josh, like your entire class at Appalachian State admitting they're all a bunch of failures. I mean, nobody from that graduating class ever got a job. Nobody from that graduating class ever got married. Nobody from that graduating class ever had a kid. You know, we're all miserable failures. And I think when they look at Trump, they, they see uh, not just the contrarian opinion, and I'm talking about the voters, that they just see kind of a, a manifestation of their failures. That guy would have never been here. If we hadn't failed now, now, once again, I don't think they've ever publicly acknowledged that you can't, I mean, how do you publicly acknowledge? I get it. You're right. I mean, we sucked and here's this crazy yeah, guy. That's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, the alternative is this crazy guy who peddled fantasy and led people into the Capitol and has done some pretty wild and crazy things, but he's still at about, you know, 60% of the Republican primary and right now the front runner and odds on favor to be president of the United States. That hadn't changed. I mean, the numbers are still what the numbers are. And today, Donald Trump is the odds-on favorite to be president of the United States. We talked a little bit, and I want to get in, into this in the 8 o'clock hour. We talked a little bit last week about some of the headwinds. We talked about uh, demographics. Uh, I don't know, two or three or four years ago, all I heard was the, um, the Republican Party would become extinct. It was stale, pale, and male. The country was getting more diverse and uh, younger voters were not buying what the Republican Party was selling, and minorities have historically been in favor of the Democrat. All true, I mean, no doubt about it. And as the um, as the country became less pale, stale, and male, the likelihood that a Republican wins the White House 
was going to be a bigger and bigger challenge. Um, that demographic challenge is nowhere near as significant as the tailwinds they have with the Electoral College. I'll make a prediction. The Democrats will be all hands on deck this next and the following year. From now until the 2030 census, it's all about the Electoral College. Got to abolish the Electoral College. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Fox News Radio guest Jared Halpern is in our nation's capital. He's with us this morning. Good morning, Jared. How are you? I am well. Good morning to you. We are doing well. So the White House began by saying nothing to see at the border. Now they're agreeing that, yeah, there's something to see here, but the Republicans won't help us fund some of the necessary measures we need to take. What is, I mean, where are we in negotiations regarding uh, whatever expenditures is required to do a better job of securing the border and what policies, Jared, do we think are involved? Yeah. What's well, that second part that I think is going to be more critical, right? The, the funding is not the big issue here. There has been pretty broad bipartisan support for increased funding at the border. The president's uh, proposal is $6 billion for additional uh, border patrol to try and get more uh, asylum judges, immigration judges, so there's not such a backlog there. The issue is on what kind of policies may be in place. And, you know, the, the point about, you know, Republicans is the White House actually says that Republicans in the Senate uh, are working in good faith. So there are negotiations happening right now in the Senate between Republicans and Democrats. And the White House says those seem to be progressing and, and they think that a deal could come along. The issue is going to be in the House. The Speaker, Mike Johnson, has indicated that they are going to stick with H.R. 2, which is a um, pretty significant piece of border and immigration legislation that, that, that the House passed that has gone nowhere in the Senate. Democrats dismissed it as anti-immigrant. It's not going to become law. And so what you've heard from the White House is that House Republicans are the ones who's, who aren't working towards, towards bipartisan solutions here. So if there is a Senate breakthrough, uh, the challenge then will be whether or not uh, they can get enough support among Republicans in the House to go along with it. I think, obviously, the details are going to matter. What you are looking at right now are uh, policies that would maybe um, loot or tighten uh, asylum requirements. So when you make your case for asylum um, at the U.S., uh, you have to sort of have a credible fear standard. Uh, there have been a lot of criticism. Uh, on both sides of the aisle that that can easily be obtained and that people who aren't really in credible fear are able to seek asylum and then they get an asylum date that may be months or years in the future. They're allowed to stay in the interim. That's something that uh, Republicans would like to see tighten. There are also obviously a lot of push to, to get that remain in Mexico policy reinstated. That was where you, you were seeking asylum. You waited for that claim to be heard while you waited in Mexico. That has to be negotiated with the Mexican government. That's not something obviously the United States can do uh, unilaterally. And you saw that come up as an issue uh, when Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the uh, Mexican president uh last week and uh, a mexican delegation is expected to return to washington this month to continue those talks so there is some movement what it leads to i think remains in doubt especially given the deep divides that still remain between especially the white house and house republicans and speaker mike johnson jared last question when it comes to the senate is there a chance that a clean border security funding bill could come out of the senate without being married to ukrainian additional ukrainian funding I don't think so. Uh, I think 
the, the White House wants to keep those together because it's not just Ukraine. Remember, there's money in there for Israel. There's money in there for uh, Taiwan, the Indo-Pacific region. And their point is that these are all national security issues that need to be addressed. And so that's why they proposed it um, in this full package. I've asked that question of the White House, what they would start separating things out. So far, they've indicated that they are satisfied with the uh, with the way that this is arranged, because if you start separating it out, right, then you have to have all of these voted. Then it becomes a negotiation over each kind of bill individually. Right. And so there is, I think, a concern have about that from a process standpoint. So right now, I believe the White House thinks its strongest hand is keeping this in the one big package. But listen, as this continues to move forward and aid to Ukraine and Israel becomes more critical, you may see a change of, of strategy, but they're not there yet. Well explained. Jared, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Sure thing. That's just kind of a, a very in-depth take on the policies um, surrounding. Let, let's do this, Josh. If you don't mind, I want to um, I want to wake you up for a second um, when you're not providing the sound guy snarky and inappropriate commentary on your host uh, that you share workspace with. Um, anyway, um, not that I'm offended or bothered by any of that. You can tell. Clearly. Obviously. No, yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll be fine. Um, picking on old people, they Josh. Um is it so the New York Times had an article Friday morning in America? The American Conservative had an article Saturday afternoon online, um, fall of America, uh, excuse me, uh, evening in America, morning in America, evening in America. In the New York Times morning in America article, it was kind of an op ed, but uh, but they basically said that America's never been more welcoming, never been more inviting, never been more diverse, ne- never been more celebratory of alternate lifestyles. And and because of that, because of that, of the hope and optimism, the hope-timism that, 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 that people around the world can come to America and be exactly who they choose to be, that our future is great. And, and, and I kind of agree with that. I mean, it's never been, I mean, if you are a different, if you see the world in a non-traditional way, it's never been, America's never been more embracing and welcoming of you. I'm talking about, you know, traditional marriage and X uh, chromosomal science. I mean, forget all that. Uh, gender mutilation. If you're a, a 12-year-old boy and you believe you're born the wrong sex, pretty good chance in some of these liberal states you can have, you know, your genitalia mutilated, your sex change. So if you believe if, if your mindset is of that sort, then America is a very forward-looking and beneficial place. Uh, on, the, on the other side of the coin, you've got the American conservative that says evening in America. The reason it's evening in America is we're celebrating these perversions. We're, we're celebrating these oddities. We're allowing a, a minor child to have a sex change operation if the parent consents. I mean, if we believe that's healthy. We believe that advantages or prospers a society. Does it have to be either or, Josh? Does it either have to be morning in America, as the New York Times celebrates, or does it have to be evening in America? Can it be a little or both? Can it it be kind of a hybrid morning and evening on multiple fronts? You know, it's a complex question, but obviously I think that the answer is no. It, It has to be either or. And, uh, you know, of course, I get that there are like little nitpicky things like, you know, when it comes to this multicultural multiculturalism and like absolute diversity, you're going to run into issues because cultures 
aren't just as simple as, oh, well, I like salty food and you like sweet food. I understand you like sweet food and I like salty food, and we can agree to disagree. Cultures, that that type of stuff is way more complex and in-depth than that, and you're going to come across contradictions. So a society that completely accepts everyone's beliefs is going to invite conflict. So I think ultimately it does come down to we have to decide which decision or, you know, which culture we're going to go with. Can can you trust – you're not a liberal, I'm not a liberal, ref's not a liberal. Can you trust a liberal to pump the brakes where diversity ends and multiculturalism begins? No, you cannot. And there, there you go. I mean, that, that's kind of where we are. I mean, you, you, you know, the um, you begin to celebrate diversity. And I saw a big debate between Elon Musk and Mark Cuban over uh, the weekend a little bit. I mean, it began sometime at the end of last week. Cuban's kind of sold his soul to – wanted to be accepted, and he's talking about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Musk said, okay, so we can expect a 5'4 Asian female to be playing power forward for the Dallas Mavericks, <laughs> you know, in the name of diversity. But, but I, I, you know, I, I don't have a problem with diversity. I, I have a problem with diversity for diversity's sake, but, but I don't have a problem in including as many sorts of people the ample opportunities that you and I both have been afforded. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it doesn't bother me at all. Black, white, red, green, yellow, Gamecock, Tiger, woman, man, um, Northerner, Southerner, uh, you know, person who wears jeans, person who wears khakis. Um, but but I, once again, I think that we have taken diversity and allowed it to morph into multiculturalism without calling it that. I mean, we still call it diversity because multiculturalism kind of scares people. It freaks people out. It gets people like, wow, I don't know if I want to go there, man. I mean, you're talking about allowing a bunch. You're basically saying non-assimilation is what you're saying. I mean, to me, assimilation is an essential ingredient into a country's sovereignty and direction. I mean, you got to be, and I think Jeff last week, uh, week before, Jeff didn't call last week, week before, talking about, you know, um, immigration. We're a nation of immigrants. But historically, we were a nation of immigrants who did what? When you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And, and you assimilated. You would accept a certain value system. And you, you, know, you kind of committed to that. Um, I mean, I've read a lot about some of the Italian immigrants, some of the Jewish immigrants who came through Ellis Island. And th- their number one priority was, we're not speaking foreign language. I mean, we're Americans now. Learn American. Learn English. I mean, that's the language of this nation we're going to learn English, and I don't want to hear, you know, I mean, maybe maybe when we're together in our home somewhere, you know, we're celebrating our native place of, of origin and and kind of what we believed in. And what, but we're Americans now, and we're going to assimilate. We're going to, I mean, there was a burning desire to become an American. And, and to compare what's happening on the southern border, it's just absurd. I mean, it, 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 I said last week, and I'll, and I'll stick to this, it's an insult to Ellis Island is what it is the lawful, orderly way people came to America from all around the world. I mean, it, it was, I mean, the Statue of Liberty was an, uh, kind of an embracement of that. It, it was a, um, I mean, it was a narrative that, that people believed in, and it made the country a better place. I'll ask you this. Um, if we believe that Ellis Island, the people who came through Ellis Island benefited enormously from becoming an American. America benefited enormously from the people who came through Ellis Island 
because it was lawful, it was orderly, there was a desire to assimilate, to become an American. That's not the case any longer. I mean, that's just not. And, and, and for someone to suggest that the, the, the invasion on our southern border is immigration, I mean, it, I don't know how you get those words mixed up. You look at the visual. I mean, they're, they're cutting razor wire. They're climbing over things. They're, they're, they're knocking holes in fences. And the liberal media calls it immigration. And we need better immigration. No, we need to stop an invasion. I mean, let's call That's it right. what it is. We need to stop an invasion. That's a lot different. Sure. But, I mean, the liberal media continues to try and reflect upon the notion or idea of immigration. And they, they almost convince a lot of us, not me, but a lot of us, that this is um, it's an insult to Ellis Island to not let those people take wire cutters and, and cut the barbed wire and, you know, um, drop a baby over a fence. I mean, you, we've seen the visual. Optic, you know, some of these coyotes will, will basically drop a minor child on one side of the fence and, you know, off the child goes. And, I mean, you know, a Border Patrol agent, I mean, they're, they're, they're all, I guess, to some degree humanitarians. In that particular situation, you you kind of put being a Border Patrol agent, I mean, you don't grab the baby by the arm and sling him or her back over the fence. I mean, that's not what we do. Um, but but I, I just, you know, the, the, the concept of is it morning in America or is it evening in America? And I toyed around with that over the weekend. Can it be both? And I concluded to what, Josh, no. I mean, you are either a nation on the ascend or you're a nation in decline. And I think if you buy into America is in its, um, its dusk, you're buying into an American decline. If you're buying into America, this is the dawning of a new age in America, a new era, a new transformative force in America. Um, and some, I guess, believe that, Rev. I mean, there are people, not many listening to my voice, that believe America is a better place if a minor child can make the much-needed adjustment, become the, the gender they were intended to be born, that God made a mistake. And he gets a lot of things right. He got that 11 degree with the planet and summer and winter solstice. And he got a lot of these galaxy uh, things right of the ocean and water and, you know, having a kid. I mean, he, but he didn't know what he was doing on, on these 2% of, you know, kids who were born uh, of the right. It's just, it's kind of an, it's an interesting debate. I mean, it's more of a, um, I mean, it's not a segment by segment radio debate, but there's a story in the American conservative called, um, you know, a nation in, uh, a nation at dawn or, or a, a nation at morning. And I just think it's kind of an interesting debate to have about where America is at this particular time in its, in its existence. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. One of the interesting parts of where we are in America today in regards to politics, and this is not a story, uh, I mean, th- this is kind of a, uh, it's a story, but it's more about the movement in general. It's not about Iowa. It's not about New Hampshire, not about, about South Carolina. I read the article in the wall street journal about Elon Musk and I attempted to post and my post didn't meet community guidelines or standards Uh-oh. and what I committed or what I intended to post. I'm a, I'm a subscriber. Well, let me back up. I was. As of yesterday, oh really? Subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. You had enough, huh? I mean, I just don't want it to be a part of that. I mean, it's an establishment machine. Why would I fund to the tune, you know, thirty dollars a month the machine? So I'm no longer a um, a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. And the reason that I find that unacceptable, I expect that from the New York Times. 
And I expect that for the Washington Post. I mean, I know they're, they're hacks and hit jobs, and that's what they do. I mean, the majority of us understand the New York Times is the mouthpiece for the Democrat Party. The Washington Post is the mouthpiece for the political establishment. We always felt that we would get more fairly treated by the writers at the Wall Street Journal. They still have a kind of, you know, an editorial board and some, some op-ed writers, some opinion writers that I think are more fair. But the, the hit job on Elon Musk and then disallowing me from offering, because my, my comments were going to be, Musk is a contrarian. I mean, the Wall Street Journal does not like contrarians. I mean, you guys are part of the, um, you know, the central planning of power. And so I, I basically went on there. How do you unsubscribe? How do you become no longer, you know, pay the 30 bucks or whatever it is to be a, a subscriber? No regret whatsoever. But it's so interesting to me, Rev, when you read the article by the Wall Street Journal about Elon Musk, and it's a hit job. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's a hit job. It doesn't mention that 80% of all the payload delivered to space went from SpaceX via NASA contracts. It doesn't mention that more EVs built by Tesla than all the others put together. I mean, he, he, he experiments with mushrooms, and he smoked weed on Joe Rogan's podcast. Therefore, investors and shareholders should be very nervous about him in control of a company. So I just unsubscribed to the Wall Street Journal because, once again, I have a certain worldview. I felt the Wall Street Journal gave me a fair shake. I don't need preferential treatment. I mean, I, but 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 certainly, I, I just felt like the 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 hit piece on Elon Musk was something I didn't expect for the Wall Street Journal. I absolutely expect that from the New York Times and and Washington Post. I don't expect that from the Wall Street Journal. And if I'm you know of conservative mind, why would I continue to pay thirty dollars? a month that they're going to uh, kind of morph into something other than. And for your in- attempt to comment to be determined well, it, but, to be but it's kind of against an, community and, and standards. And it's not conservative or liberal. It's kind of an anti-American first bias that I've detected. And, um, you know, you got kind of this, you got this battle raging within the Republican Party, America first, and the former model that was not so America first. Um, talking about America first, Donald Trump would be the, um, I don't know, the 800-pound gorilla. We thought he'd reduce to 700 pounds, but I'm convinced he may be 900 pounds um, today. And the people trying to destroy Trump, I think, only make him stronger. Illinois is the latest state to have challenges to Trump's 2024 presidential candidacy. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, what is the latest out of Illinois? Morning, guys. So a handful of voters, five exact, filing a petition here in Illinois with the state elections board claiming that the former president is ineligible for the 2024 election, disqualified from holding public office because of J6. The petition, similar to those filed in more than a dozen other states, citing the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibits anyone from holding office who previously has taken an oath to defend the Constitution and later engage in insurrection. Uh, the eight-member Illinois Elections Board, it's made up of four Democrats and four Republicans. They'll soon decide on, on the matter. Um, the primary ballot is is expected to be certified uh, around the uh, the 11th, so this week, a couple days away, uh, as the state's primary is set for March 19th. If the board rejects the move, like California's did, uh, then people behind the effort, they could still seek judicial reviews but um you know ultimately uh this 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 case will be 
settled by the U.S. Supreme Court, expected to take up Colorado's uh, move to keep Trump off the ballot there on February 8th. Uh, President Trump has never been charged with insurrection, uh, let alone convicted, and supporters call the move election interference. Jeff, is there is there? I mean, this is kind of in the weeds, but you, you always give good advice and good uh, good reporting on this. Would there be an attempt by one of these states to try and create language unique? So, if the U.S. Supreme Court made a ruling, that ruling may not apply. Am, am I making sense here? I mean, I know that we, we expect some sort of blanket call from the Supreme Court, but what if a state created some sort of uniqueness within the language of keeping Trump off the ballot? And, and and it didn't really – the court's decision didn't really apply to the uniqueness of that state keeping him off the ballot. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, look, well, first of all, nothing makes sense anymore, and everything kind of makes sense. Um, <laughs> when, when you talk about how, 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 how things could, could, could play out in weird ways, so sure, uh, it, that, that's very well you know possible that, that something like that could happen, that somebody's already cooking up uh, you know a scheme to do that, but – you know, the, the, it's just fascinating because, you know, as I mentioned, the, the president has never been convicted or, or accused uh, in a court of law of, of insurrection. Yet more than a dozen states have used that alone as uh, enough reason to, you know, to ban him, uh, including, you know, rogue you know, state elections officials like the one in Maine. By the way, that one's still working its way through the, the state court up to the, uh, the, the Maine Supreme Court. Um, wouldn't surprise me. I guess that's the short answer to your question. And that's a good answer. Jeff, thank you for your time, my man. Have a good day. You bet. You know, and, and I want to, let's, let's stay in Illinois for a second here, because I think this will be interesting if we can, um, if we can explain it the right way. Remember, I, I've, I've argued, or we've argued for several years, Josh, um, pre, prior to you getting here, but I mean, we've continued some of this, that the, the Republicans have a Democratic, excuse me, a demographic problem. I mean, they're, they're not very younger voters don't find the GOP very attractive. Um, minorities have historically not found the GOP very attractive. Some of that's changing, in particular in the Latino community. Um, some of the Latino vote, we believe, I mean, if you believe polling and take it for what it's worth, Trump could potentially win in November with the Latino vote. Um, African-American males seem to be uh, more interested in voting Republican if Trump is indeed the nominee. So we've talked about demographically, there's some issues. Stale, pale, and male is what I like to refer to it as. Uh, now, once again, if the African-American male votes at a higher percentage, if the Latino votes at a higher percentage, uh, the, the blind spot will be, you ready? Young, college-educated voters and suburban females. College-educated females and young college-educated males and females. I mean, college is not very kind to the Republican calls when you look at subsets of voters uh, in relation to some of the polling. But if you begin breaking it down and you look at some of the projections, the Brennan Center for Justice did a, a pretty detailed analysis of what looks like is happening in America today. We know what's happening. I mean, we've got mass migration population shifts from some of the blue cities, it's not necessarily the blue states. I mean, it is the blue state because the blue city's in the blue state, but it's mainly the cities. The rural parts of some of these blue states, you're not seeing a big mass exodus. It's only in, in these major American cities 
let's take a break. I want to come back because this will take a few moments, but I think you'll be very interested. And it's very encouraging if you're a Republican because we've been told for the last 10 or 15 years it's a dying party. I mean, it's a party going to be hard to find itself competitive in presidential elections. I'm going to give you a reason to be much more optimistic long-term about the um, the uh, ah, the future of the good old or the grand old party. Take a break. Back in a few. Let's go back to this story because to me it's fairly interesting. Um, talking about demographic challenges for the Republicans. What about migration challenges for the Democrat? Um, the Brennan Center for Justice, for whatever reason, um, commissioned itself to go off and do kind of a um, a projection on some of the states and what they'll look like in the 2032 presidential election. And the states that Joe Biden easily carried um, in 2020 would lose about uh, a net of 12 House seats to states carried by Donald Trump. That's a big number, guys. I mean, that's a big number. Another two states, or another two seats would move from two Rust Belt swing states, Michigan and Pennsylvania, to Arizona and Georgia. So if the projection proves correct, and this is, I mean, there's some trends here. This is the first COVID, um, uh, the first COVID census. I mean, the, you know, in 2020, you had a census. In 2030, you'll have a census. And in 2020, you hadn't had this big COVID exodus of people leaving some of the blue states, moving to some of the red states. Um, a Republican candidate can win the White House. You ready for this? I mean, this is more optimistic than I imagined. Can win the White House by winning the states Trump won in 2020 plus Arizona and Georgia. I'm going to imagine that. Forget Pennsylvania, forget Michigan, forget Wisconsin, forget Nevada. I mean, if, if the Republican can win Georgia, I think they fixed Georgia, and I think Georgia not is it's not solidly red, but it's light red. I mean, it, it's as red as North Carolina. It's not as red as South Carolina, but it's as red as North Carolina. So you ask yourself when you follow up that, you say, okay, but what about all these liberals moving to the red states? That's not the case. But I mean, it seems there's a lot of data out there that shows that Republican strength is increasing in some of what we'll call destination states as a result of the pandemic migrations. I mean, that, that's kind of inside the language. I mean, pandemic migrations and destination states. I mean, I read a lot in the Brennan Center for, um, I'll give an example. Florida would be a good example. When Joe Biden won in 2020 and took office, Democrats had about a 97,000 person lead in voter registration. Now, but the independents in, in Florida voted for the Republican overwhelmingly, but the, the registered R, registered D in Florida, Biden and the Democrats had about a 97,000 person advantage. Today, the Republicans have a 698,000 advantage. Whoa. So basically, every northerner that has moved to Florida has maintained their Republican status. New York is less Republican than it's ever been, I would imagine. New Jersey is probably less Republican than it's ever been because all the Republicans are moving out of the high regulation, 
high-tax states moving. I mean, you can call it weather chasing. Uh, you can say, well, I mean, you know, the uh, the taxes and quality of life have little to do with it. It's all about the weather, snow and sleet and freezing rain and sub-zero temperature. Anyway, uh, okay, some of that, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt there isn't some weather chasing going on, but it's going to create a, an enormous advantage, an enormous advantage for the Republicans moving forward. So, so um, I mean, I'll give you another example. North Carolina, I mean, let's say that is a light red state. I think Georgia is a light red state, but um, but North Carolina had an advantage of 374,000 registered Ds as opposed to registered Rs. That number's down to 194. So the people moving to South Carolina are bringing their voting habits, and it's, it's Republican. The people moving to North Carolina, the people moving to Georgia, obviously the people moving to, to Texas and um, and Florida, two big states. So So here's what's happening. In Illinois, California, and New York, the Democrats are going to lose about 10 electoral college votes. And that's some of that, that's a big swing, guys. In other words, in 2032, and I'm being redundant here, but in 2032, if the Republican wins the states that Trump won, adds Georgia and adds Arizona, they get to the necessary 270. That's why I believe that once they stop trying to put Trump in prison, and all the January 6th perpetrators, you know, and make the election about January 6th. I mean, Twitter is ablaze today with January 6th. It's so interesting, though, Rev. Those who say Trump is not an insurrectionist have hundreds of thousands of views and hundreds of thousands of likes. Those like, here you go, Republican accountability. I mean, this is an anti-Trump Republican account, um, and they're saying he's responsible for January 6th. He can never be president again. Running nationally on Fox News during the Haley, DeSantis, and Trump town halls. I mean, the Trump did this. Um, 57,000. Some of the other pro-Trump Twitter sites are getting in excess of a million. So it's just, I mean, the media is trying to sell something. And some of these Twitter organizations, I mean, they're, they're, they're campaign affiliated. I mean, they're probably paid for by, I mean, I don't have any idea. And I'll make an accusation I can't defend. And I'll say I'm speculating. Republican accountability is probably funded by Raytheon. BlackRock and JP Morgan. I mean, that's probably some, you know, um, geek squad member from, from wherever, but they're probably getting all the money to try to get it mainstream and try to get it viral. Um, on, but, but it's just 2032 guys. I mean, if this migration, if this pandemic migration reset, I mean, it's going to wane. I mean, everybody's going to eventually move that can move and wants to move. But, but it's going to, I mean, it's, there's another couple or three years is what the Brennan Institute says. And the Republican is going to have a distinct advantage heading in to a 2032 presidential election. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. Good morning, guys. Uh, I got to disagree with you on one thing, Ken. I think there is a method behind their madness. And if you think about it, you got to think about back what they did before, and then refer to what they're doing now. If you well remember on the last census, they forbid, the government took the question off the census of whether or not you're a citizen, okay? If you did not have to answer that question, you will be counted in that state as a resident. 
okay, if you take into consideration what they're doing at the border and the fact that uh, Biden actually flew 130,000 of those illegals into New York before uh, Abbott ever started. So in New York, they started letting the illegals vote in local elections. So they've laid the platform of replacing anyone that leaves with illegals. In North Carolina, I want you to answer one thing. If you're an illegal in this country and you are not a citizen, but you can go to the highway department and get a driver's license, get insurance, uh, and uh, have all the benefits of any citizen, how do you keep from being counted as a citizen or kept from being on the voting registration? Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, think about this, guys. Um, Let's take a break. Josh, give me the break sign. Let's take a break. We'll come back. And um, I'll offer, an, I don't want to say an alternative opinion to what Daphne is talking about. The, the Democrats are making a bet. It's a big bet. To me, it's not a smart bet, but it's one nonetheless. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Here's the way the deal's supposed to work. You ready, Josh? I mean, if you grow up near the coast of South Carolina, you cross your fingers during hurricane season. You know the thunderstorms are part of the summer. You, you, you may get a little dusting of snow once every three or four. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. And I wake up this morning on my way from Pauly's Island. I, I, I didn't come home yesterday. I came home this morning, and I'm hearing this WMBF news report of a level three storm. It's January. That doesn't happen in South <laughs> Carolina in January. So Rev ran down an expert, WMBF meteorologist Andrew Dockery, and I hope he's going to tell me something's amiss and they don't mean anything. <laughs> They're saying about what the weather may or may not do. What's going on, Andrew, and what can we expect tomorrow? We're going to blame Jamie for all this. Okay? <laughs> How about that? Good deal. <laughs> Sounds go. good to me, but what in the world? Uh, yeah, it is It is one of those unusual setups. Of course, we talked about El Nino and all that happening months ago, and this is a result of a pretty active storm pattern unfolding here um, as we head into January and February, and hopefully done by that. But um, this is the first of probably multiple rounds of severe weather through the winter season. Um, like you said, level three risk. It's been a new update for us since uh, last night. Came out around 1.30 overnight. Um, basically, that level three risk uh, highlighting an area from all the way up into the PD, all the way down to the beaches. And uh, basically, every severe weather threat on the table. Um, we're talking about uh, the potential for uh, a couple tornadoes as we head into the forecast tomorrow afternoon. Um, but really, the heavy rain and wind also going to be something that I think everyone sees in some form or fashion. As far as timing goes, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, especially in inland areas, and notice some of the rain around for the morning commute. Nothing severe anticipated for the morning, but as that warm front lifts, what will begin to happen is we'll start to build a little bit of storm fuel in here. Um, and right now, just looking at some of the latest data that's coming in, at least here um, in the weather office, the worst of the weather probably ranges anywhere from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. with a couple of isolated cells that are ahead of the line. But the actual line itself 
probably arrive somewhere around 3 to 4 p.m. for the I-95 corridor, and then, of course, pushes toward the beaches as we head closer to 6, 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Andrew, is it sporadic and, and isolated, or is this kind of a front that everybody will see about the same sort of, of threat? That's a great question. I really think uh, you're going to see isolated, sporadic activity basically from noon to 3. Um, I think that's going to be the time frame where if we're going to have a big, bad storm that tries to take all the storm fuel, that will be it. Um, after that, everyone picks up on the line of heavy wind and heavy rain. Um, I would say as, as early as 3 to 4 o'clock for the I-95 corridor. Um, right now, looks like that would work through Marion County closer to 4 or 5 o'clock. And then toward the beaches, like we said, I think by 7, this thing's to our east, and we're done with this completely, which would be some good news. And you said this could be more common than normal in January and February. I'm not a meteorologist, so don't confuse me. Mm-hmm. But why? I mean, at Cliff Note, why are we – as concerned about this sort of weather in January, February of this year. Yeah, it's all it's all set up with the El Nino weather pattern. So it's uh, two opposite weather patterns. And believe it or not, uh, when you have your El Nino, that basically has a little bit of an extended jet streak, a more amplified track of storms. Now, compared to a La Nina year, the, the track is further south. Um, and that just lines up right over the Carolinas. So what's typically happening Um, As we go into an El Nino type winter, is you're having big swings in temperatures, big swings in the jet stream, big snowstorms to our northwest um, work through. And unfortunately, we're kind of stuck on the warm side of that. You get those big temperature swings. Typically, there's some sort of severe weather associated with that. So right now we're on the warm side. Now, um, we've been talking and kind of monitoring this. You also can get some snow in the Carolinas on those El Nino years, some snow for the beaches. So um, it's going to be a very big thing to watch as we head into these next couple of months, because just because we're dealing with severe weather right now, doesn't mean that we're not dealing with, you know, potential snow in February or even early March. It's going to be a very active and, and wet and dreary pattern. No doubt about it. Last question. As you, Jamie and your team try to uh, assemble you know, better predictions, more precise, uh, you know, locations where the bad weather will be as the day tomorrow progresses. Facebook, Twitter, website, television. I mean, I would imagine all hands on deck tomorrow. How can our listeners keep up with what your predictions and prognosis look like? I would tell you the easiest way to get it right into the palm of your hand is to download that WNBF First Alert weather app. Um, You can actually just search WNBF First Alert in your app store. Um, we're putting video updates out hourly um, to give you the most updated information. If you are one of those people who are on Twitter or Facebook, you can search Jamie Arnold or Andrew Dockery easily there. You'll find us. Uh, it's just two guys with a tie on in the photo. You can't miss us, I promise. Um, but we're there answering questions all day long. We're posting updates there. And then, of course, our WMBF News and WMBF First Alert Facebook pages as well. Um, just some great resources to have that basically, like you said, from yesterday all the way through the end of this thing, we got team coverage here and uh, at least two Mets in at all times. And we appreciate you joining us, my man. Thank you very much, Andrew. Of course. Y'all have a good one. Do the same. Andrew Dockery, meteorologist, WMBF, predicting some bad weather. I think I heard him say conditions deteriorating deteriorating a little bit afternoon, um, noon to four. 
seems to me the window that we may have the chance uh, for um, not so good weather in the first week or second week now. Uh, yeah, second week uh, of the first month of the year. I, so, didn't, I didn't know what that meant when they started talking about these level three threats of severe weather. And so that's why it starts getting your attention when they up it to level three. So he explained it. Yeah, explained I, was, it well. I was riding in this morning. I stayed at the beach last night, rode in this morning, and I was listening to some weather. I'm like, what? I mean, it's not. This has got to be old. I mean, it's early in the morning. They've got some wrong, you know, some some newbie is working in the newsroom, and he's put in some September or October um, weather forecast. Not the case. So just um, fasten the hatches and um, be careful tomorrow from noon until well, I'd say slightly before noon. And don't take my word on it. That's what Andrew said. But the best thing to do is to download the WMBF weather app. That way it's um it's it's real time um, keeping up with the storm a lot better than than I ever will. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning. I, I don't know, Ken. Does that mean school's canceled tomorrow? I would imagine it's canceled for tomorrow. Wednesday and Thursday, if, <laughs> no. if we're predicting bad there weather. Go, Don't man. say that unless uh, you know it. Hey, let's get past January 6th and away. Today's January 8th. So this is Elvis' birthday, man. That Time to celebrate. You you talking about 2032. Well, let's focus on January 8th, 2024. But I watched this thing the other day with Biden. and Wasn't uh, there a song called Philadelphia Freedom back yeah. in the day? That was Elton John. Elton John. Elton John. And I remember, okay, I guess the Democrats now, uh, abortion, what is that, reproductive freedom? Um, you know, there's guns, that's freedom from getting shot. Uh, gender, gender freedom. Oh, gosh, well, we now we got border freedom. So, God, they frustrate me, and I misspoke. I said that Biden, I mean, Hillary had won Philadelphia by 475, no, 475,000 votes. Uh, Biden won by 471,000 votes. And to give you an idea, if you added up the populations of Columbia, Charleston, Greenville, Florence, Sumter, and Orangeburg, it don't come up to 475,000. So guess what? You're going to see that our man uh, Biden, he is going to be camped out in Pennsylvania. Look at how many times he's been there because he knows if he don't win them 19 electoral votes, he don't have a chance. Democrats don't do either. And I'm always um, infatuated how that state has changed because, can you, uh, back in the day, there was a guy named Arlen Specter. He was a, uh, a Republican from up there. I think there's a guy on uh, CNN called Sparkhanish. I might be the only person that's ever watched that show. But these were old-school Republicans, and they were socially moderate. They, they liked to make money. I mean, they, they didn't like high taxes. But these guys now are Democrats. And what you find that the people that lived in the heartland of Pennsylvania, they were factory workers that they were, you know, they wanted their jobs pro labor. Uh, they still were kind of conservative as far as uh, social values. And those are the Trump voters. Those are the ones that have swung from the Democrat to the Republican Party. So they're scared to death of those people, but they got to keep their margins within Philadelphia. And these collar counties, and Ken, I don't know if it would be a good business opportunity for anybody because you say in Pauley's Island there's more Michigan fans than in Ann Arbor. There seems to be more Michigan and Ohio State fans. I would go ahead and print up the Michigan National Championship shirt 
and get out there in Pauley's Island and try to sell them uh, right after the game. And if they don't win, if they don't win, we can just hand them to those people coming over the border, and we probably get better news coverage because we're trying to give them uh, clothing. But anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Rev made an interesting point, Josh. Rev said he is sure that um, – oh, let, let's use this as an example. Let's play off David's comments about Michigan and Ohio. Michigan's one of the states losing a lot of population. Ohio's losing some population, but not like Michigan, not like uh, California. California and New York are, are the leaders. I mean, there is a mass exodus, and it's not rural New York. It's not rural California. I mean, there's still conservative voices in California. There's still some conservatives in upstate New York. But in these big, major American cities that are governed largely by liberal Democrats, they, they, they refuse to prosecute crime. And, and like Rev said, and he makes a very valid point, they're probably still somewhat liberal. I mean, they probably are in the traditional sense. They're probably a little more sympathetic to government than I am. They're probably a little more uh, believing that government needs to be kind of the, the safety net evaluator in society that, you know, I know I know those conservatives want to cut programs, but I think we need to fund these programs. I mean, that's always been a very legitimate warning debate. But like Rev said, all of a sudden you don't prosecute crime and and you you, you forsake the right to safeguard a police station and, and you say things like, well, the riders had, you know, they need room to, to protest. And you, you just, you, people don't feel safe. And, and I think they come down south, and I'm talking about Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, out in the west. I mean, it, th- those are the states. Texas is growing like crazy. I mean, I don't think it's all about moving to a conservative state. I think it's all about moving to a place that seems to have not lost its mind. I mean, some of these some of these municipalities in New York, municipalities in Illinois, municipalities in California, I mean, they seem to be back crap crazy. So, so when someone moves to South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, I don't know that they're forsaking their 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 liberal fundamental belief. I just think they're saying that's crazy. That's too crazy for me. And if that's where my party is, then count me in as part of this of this other party. I think that's happening all over America. I don't think people leave a borough of New York City because they just they're they're tired of being conservative in a liberal world. I just think taxation and safety and some of these fundamentals of our existence. I mean, I, you know, I, I want to keep my money and be safe, right? I mean, New Yorkers are no different than that, right? I mean, do you think New Yorkers like to be in peril and not keep their money? I don't think they do. People in New Jersey, I mean, do you think everybody in New Jersey is crazy enough to give the government all of its money and go to bed at night not feeling safe? I mean, eventually they said, I'm the hell out of here. I mean, I don't feel safe. They're taking all my money. Uh, you know, I don't know what I'm getting for the money. Um, and all of a sudden you see a mayor or a a governor on television talking about transgenderism, you know, or, or, or abortion, and it's pretty radical from where you sit. Uh, I mean, to me, transgenderism is radical to begin with. I mean, I understand abortion has been a central issue of debate in American politics for the balance of my life. It will probably always be a central debate in American politics for as long as I live, for as long as Josh lives. You're talking about protecting human life. There's always going to be a vigorous debate about where, when, and how a woman should be allowed to end a pregnancy. I mean, that, that's going to happen in New York, California, Massachusetts, Illinois, South Carolina. I mean, that's going to happen all over the place. But there are certain things you don't expect to debate. I mean, if you're living in Newark, New Jersey, 
and the and the governor or excuse me the mayor of New Jersey says we're not going to prosecute offenders of shoplifting offenses unless it's over a thousand dollars, and you're you're a Northeast liberal, you're a traditional Northeast liberal, and you go do what? I mean I didn't I don't know that I signed up for that. I mean you know she's a Democrat, the mayor. I'm a Democrat. We tend to kind of jihad on some of these other things, but really, I mean she just said publicly that unless you shoplift an amount excess of $2,000, we're not going to prosecute? I mean, and, and, you, and you, you turn the television on and you turn one of the social media platforms on and you watch someone storm into a big box and just ransack the place and grab, you know, material and goods. And, I mean, I'm talking about this, um, it's not spree shopping. What do they call it? Um, what, what's the name? Help me here, Rev. I mean, it's just... When they loot these businesses, yeah. I mean, it's not like they go in in the middle of the night when they're closed, kick the glass in. I mean, they oh, do there's it in a the name for that their, now. Oh, the, yeah, but there, there's. But I, what I'm saying is, to your point, I think there are liberals who say, "Well, I didn't sign up for that." I mean, I'm not a conservative, and I'm not one of these guys that wants to, you know, drown government in the bathtub, and I'm not a Trump supporter. But 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 I'm also not one that that believes that's smart, and, and I think people begin to put their political persuasions. In a secondary place, if they're being, if they feel they're being looted, and you're taking all their money, and all of a sudden the people that are taking their money say we're not going to prosecute crimes. Now, if a shoplifter shoplifts over two thousand dollars, then that's a, a criminal offense. But if he goes into the local convenience store and steals a case of beer, you know, and uh, all the all the, the 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 deli meat in the counter, then that's not really categorized shoplifting. If he goes into electronic store and steals two televisions, but they don't equal $2,000, but he steals four and it equals, you see where I'm headed? I, I just think naturally people go and, and, and maybe, I mean, Archie Bunker sits down and even sits beside him and Archie says, we got to get out of here. I mean, this is nonsense. I don't what I, the point I'm trying to make, I don't think you forsake your, your liberal belief or mindset. I think that's still who you are. But, but I think, to your point, Reb, it's almost like the Democrats have lost their mind. And I'm not saying every Democrat. I think that's unfair. The radicalization of liberalism is causing some people who have historically identified as liberals to say, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm one of those or not. <laughs> and I certainly don't know that I want to live in a state that doesn't prosecute crime, but rather cel- I don't probably not celebrate. That would be unfair. But just kind of... um calls it part of leveling the playing field, I guess. Uh, those who have had socioeconomic advantages, oh, those who have not, the right is still two televisions. Just don't steal four. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I'd love to make the money that a CEO of a Fortune 100 company makes, except today if I was CEO of Boeing. They've got some issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they've got some serious, serious issues. Forget conservative and liberal for just a second. I mean, this 737 MAX 900 and the repositioning of the engine and all the, I don't know, the the design adjustments they've made and what happened over the weekend, it's it's a great name in in, in aviation seeing it's, it's, I don't know, Rev. I mean, it's just, I mean, Boeing has a big presence in South Carolina, so I don't want to beat up on Boeing because they're a big, corporate citizen here and in the state that we love and the state a lot of people from new jersey new york are moving to 
But I'll tell you, man, Boeing's got some serious issues. And, yeah, and, and door they better, ripped off during they, flight. Yeah, and, and they, they can't explain it. Now there's some speculation that in several of these flights, some of that, so the seats near that area of the plane were not filled. And that's leading some, you ready, conspiracy theorists to say, did they not fill those seats because they knew they had a potential design flaw? Wall Street Journal has a big article today. Um, I can't read it because it's behind a paywall. I can actually read it until the 24th of January when my subscription officially ends. But they're talking about uh, that there's some aviation expert who says, I just find it eerie that those seats were not, um, nobody was sitting in those seats if the plane was two-thirds full. Those would be high-demand seats unless Boeing instructed Alaska Airlines to not allow anybody to sit there. I, I guess we'll do a big uh, a post-mortem, and we'll find out exactly. I don't want to speculate, and I wouldn't understand it if I did speculate, um, except that Boeing has a reputation issue right now. I'll ask you. I mean, if you were flying from here to California, would you fly on a 737 MAX 900? Um, right now, I'd think twice about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't I think mean, I would. And I'm yeah. not that, that afraid. I mean, just I mean, because I, of this latest. I mean, remember they had some major issues that resulted in crashes and, and people dying. And, and, ground, and, and some misrepresenting of facts. And they they grounded them sure. and they repaired them. And I, I've, I've flown on one since then. Um, but, you know, another, here, here's some more evidence that makes you concerned. Very, very concerned. And, and, and thank goodness nobody yeah, was concerned. No, no question about it, but did been tragic. I mean, obviously there will be an investigation and I mean, Boeing just seems to me, um, I mean, they're losing to Airbus and Airbus is a state run. <laughs> I mean, they're losing to a socialist auto. I mean, a plane manufacturer. That's how bad Boeing's plot is right now. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Good morning. Uh, happy new year. Same to you, happy sir. New year. Hey, um, so uh, it, Boeing, it, they definitely haven't uh, done themselves favors with this uh, new shift that they've done for manufacturing where they they make one basic plane and they try and stretch it and modify it and not go through the full approval process. That's, that's where this issue is coming from. Uh, the FAA um, is complicit in allowing this issue to arise, I think. Jeff, who else um, is complicit? I mean, uh, well, Boeing, Boeing is, I mean, clearly, um, they, like, they didn't even notify the pilots that when they were stretching and changing these designs, that the, the computer system, that MAC, that MAC system, was adjusting the throttle because the pilots didn't know the differences between the two planes. Correct. So every time, every time you make a new plane, you got to certify your pilots on it. Boeing's pitch to the airlines was, this is a MAX 737. You just have to certify your pilots once on this plane, even though there's, what, five different configurations? So it was, that's, that's the issue. They, yeah, they and, and, and the retrofitting of the new engines has caused a front-heavy, kind of an unbalanced mm-hmm. design. And, and, I mean, they, they've left themselves open to a lot of criticism and trying to streamline things. I mean, we know why they did it. They're more profitable yeah. in doing it this way. But um, but basically, some experts argue they put a Band-Aid on it with this this software change, and, and here we are. Yeah, and, and, and they made promises. The airlines went along with it because it saved them money on training pilots. And so, you know, either way, um, but, but, you know, we, 
need a little more oversight over that. Uh, so the FAA should be beefed up a little bit and beat up. A Trump, bit. Trump will do that when he gets there in January. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Uh, he'll be in an orange jumpsuit. <laughs> but, <laughs> It'll match his uh, hair. <laughs> I did want to. I did want to talk to you about uh, <laughs> the. Um, you, you were talking about population shifting. You were talking about particular states, um, and you put it on pandemic shifting, pandemic migration. But let's let's be honest. You know, you're believing that those are people who are conservative, but they're also a bunch of baby boomers. You, you know, you see that, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm quoting. I mean, I've got a different opinion that, than the Brennan Center for Justice. They're the ones that, that basically talk about destination states and, and pandemic migrations. Um, I mean, I think it's far more complicated than just the pandemic and just those trying to leave um, high tax, high regulation states. I think there's a lot of things kicking. But, but it's undeniable the Republicans are advantaged in this migration. Well, you know, so so Florida definitely, no doubt about it. Uh, you move that from a purple column to a red column. I got I got no issues with that premise, at all. Um, but when you look at Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina, which are those Georgia and North Carolina and South Carolina are picking up in popularity for retirees in Nevada versus Florida, and and so as as uh, as these northerners move in and you're seeing it, you, you talk about it all the time when you're down at the beach, you know, those retirees, you know, to, to categorize them as uh, conservative might or Republican leaning might uh, be incorrect. You are seeing a, a little bit of a shift in Georgia and North Carolina, more so than South Carolina. But you're seeing it in South Carolina that this is. Uh, becoming more North Carolina and Georgia are definitely shifting more purple. Do you see that? Yes, I, I'll agree with you. On, I, mean, I don't know on Georgia yet, Jeff. I still believe that Georgia and Stacey Abrams did the best job of maximizing the benefit of the money Mark Zuckerberg gave to the American Center for Tech and Civic Life. You've never heard me say the election was stolen. They, they took ample resources and made a huge difference in Gwinnett and Fulton County. If that happens again, I'll give you that. I do agree that Georgia is light red at best, purple at worst, probably somewhere between light red and purple. I'm not sold on Georgia yet. I want to see one more presidential cycle before I try to tell you what I really believe. Yeah, and, and, it's, um, and, and you look at Nevada, um, and and let's be honest, Texas is shifting away from red. As crazy as that sounds, we can agree or disagree, but there's no doubt that Texas is becoming more competitive. It's more competitive, but it's still red. Right. And it's not, um, you know, as far as the uh, electoral college shifts go, um, you know, it, it is something to watch. It will be interesting after um, – you know, uh, they, they do the realignment, but either way, been enjoying the show. Uh, just, uh, just wanted to call in on that. Uh, don't forget the boomers because the, the Republicans are floating and, you know, changes, a lot of changes, in social security and Medicare. I'll agree. That's what, you know, I was, I was going to kind of go there a little bit tomorrow with, um, some of the budget and I mean, we think that, thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. We think the white house has made a deal with the leadership of the house and Senate about budget 
Uh, I mean, there's about 60 or $70 billion that I think is in question. Freedom Caucus obviously doesn't want to do much of anything to fund the government unless they get, you know, a budget instead of a CR or some sort of omnibus. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the party that understands and articulates Social Security and Medicare reform will be the party, and, I mean, I guess the best way to do it is leave it alone and don't bother it until the debt bubble does finally blow up and we're forced to deal with it in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not arguing that everybody moving to South Carolina from, let's say, New York or New Jersey brings, you know, a MAGA hat with them or a, a you know, a lifetime subscription to the NRA or membership of the NRA and, and subscription to the National Review. I'm not arguing that. Um, I think we're speculating. Could it be? I think Rev kind of, I mean, they offered this as a, you know, let's, let's, let's debate whether or not it's some of these Northeast liberals in the traditional sense are going, I didn't sign up for that. I mean, I'm a liberal. I'm unapologetic about being a liberal, but, but I didn't sign up for, you know, not prosecuting criminals or, or, you know, standing down when law enforcement is, is, um, is, is threatened or affected or impacted. That's not liberal. I mean, that's radical. And, and I just, you know, I think when you talk about some of the northerners that, that financially are able to relocate and are looking for better weather, um, you know, do they bring more conservative bona fide? I don't have any idea. Um, it would be very interesting to look and see how many uh, Republican voters there were. Do this, Rev. Mm-hmm. How, many, how many voters did Trump get in New York and California? I mean, that'd be a very interesting number to me. And, and what percentage of New Yorkers are moving to the Carolinas? What percentage of Californians are moving to Nevada, Arizona, Texas, some of the Utah, some of the other? I mean, they're, they're not migrating from California to, to South Carolina. I mean, they're just not doing that. The majority of ours are from the Midwest and, and the Northeast. I mean, we know that. I mean, there's no doubt that that's the case. And South Carolina, by most accounts, is one of the three, four, five fastest growing um, states in America. But I'd be very interesting. How many Trump voters are there in California and New York. All right. I looked at New York first. Uh, he got 3,251,000 to Biden's 5,244,000. Okay, so, so three and a quarter million people. How many? And that was in 2020. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and we don't have any breakdown. In other words, the number of New Yorkers who moved to the Carolinas, is it 60, 40 Trump voters opposed to Biden voters? I don't have any idea. We do have to believe that if people are becoming, I mean, if the reason you moved is because of government, it's more likely you're a conservative. Now, if you move because you're tired of the snow and ice, I mean, it doesn't snow on conservatives' house and not on liberals' house. You don't have to, um, you know, snow plow or what am I trying to say? Snow shovel, shovel the driveway. Uh, in other words, hey, those are conservative homes. Don't snow on their house. No, I mean, that's not the case. But it would be very, we don't know the answer to that. I mean, nobody knows the answer to that. The only thing I can offer up is when Biden took office, Democrats had a 97,000 lead in voter registration. Today, Republicans have a 698,000. But that leads me to believe, I forget the Carolinas for a second, the voters moving into Florida are, are Republicans, overwhelmingly Republicans. But I think Jeff nodded his hat and said, or nodded his um, head saying, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. Florida's not a swing state anymore. I mean, it's red. Probably redder than North Carolina. Certainly redder than Georgia. The numbers in California in 2020, Trump got uh, just over 6 million votes. Biden got 11 million. So you got roughly 9.5, 10 million votes in two states. How many of those Californians are moving to Nevada, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Texas, 
Arizona. How many of those are leaving California because of their political persuasions? Because uh, when you say you're leaving the Northeast, I get it. Why would you leave California when it has the best weather on the planet, right? I mean, it's hard to argue people leaving California are not e- not at least to some degree leaving because some of because of some economic situation they find themselves in. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We're in the short rows, but we got a time for another call and a trivia question. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you doing? Morning, sir. How are you? Great, thank you. I, this is not about the trivia question, Ken. I just had something you were speaking of a while ago about people coming in a store and, and robbing it and getting away with one or two thousand dollars. What if two men go out and knock my wife down and hit her and rob her pocketbook and a TV? Am I not allowed to protect her? Thank you, gentlemen. Have a blessed day. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it, it's just kind of. It's kind of crazy. I mean, Mike Nunn uh, was with us, what, a couple of weeks back and explained to over the air. I mean, I think he said we had a situation in Florence where someone went outside, um, heard a car alarm, and somebody was trying to break into their car, went outside to basically protect their property and was fired upon. And Mike led us to believe that you can't, I mean, unless you're in danger. I mean, I I imagine once they fired at him, he has a right to defend himself. But he could not have cracked the window or the door, so to speak, and took a wild shot at someone, um, you know, trying to steal his car or break into his into his car. I don't want to give advice or or permission for anybody to do anything because uh, I'm not that guy. I don't I don't need to be telling people what you can and cannot do. I, I do believe it's absurd, and I do believe that this is some of the reason people are leaving the liberally governed states when you don't enforce the law. I mean, we can have a debate on abortion and a debate on, well, I mean, to me, gender dysphoria is kind of all. Anyway, um, somebody breaks the law, and there's no criminal punishment until you break the law to such an extreme degree that the, you know, the monetary damage you've done exceeds what, I mean, I understand severity of crimes. I mean, if you break in, if you rob three banks, I mean, that's different than robbing one bank. But but how do you, I mean, Breaking into a Best Buy and stealing a TV isn't a crime, but breaking into a Best Buy and stealing three TVs is because you cross the threshold, whatever that monetary number is. Uh, that's just that's kind of wild, bizarre, and absurd um, mm-hmm. to me. Cue the music, Josh. It's time for some Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. They've been with us since the get-go. We're in our, what, 12th year of being on the air? Yeah, they would have so. been, been with us since the beginning. So the correct answer, the first correct answer to this question, wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt. Talking about states and, you know, growing states and states in decline and population shifts and pandemic relocations. The 13 colonies were New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia. North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Here's my question. Once they were once they signed the Constitution, they were ratified as the first 13 states. They went from colonies to states and ratification of the Constitution. What was the 14th state? What was the first state 
out of the original 13 colonies that became states that next became uh, enjoy this benefit of U.S. statehood. 843-661-0937 is our number, not including the 13 colonies that were ratified as states. What came next? I guess what I'm asking is, what is the 14th state in the good old U.S. of A? First answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Maine. Nope, not Maine. 843-661-0937. Hello, you're on. What is your answer? I'm going to say Florida. Nope, not Florida. 843-661-0937. You are on the air. What's your guess? Vermont. Vermont is right. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Justin from Florence. Okay, Justin, sit tight for a minute or two. I'll get you back to Josh. He'll um, get your name and number. And Sandy at the front desk will have your Pepsi product and your couple of Takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts. Is that Vermont or Vermont? That's Vermont. Okay. Say it, Josh. Vermont. Oh, no. what it was. <laughs> um, it's Vermont. Just making sure. Is, is it a vermint? Nope. It's what, what, what Vermont. Is? Okay. He won't play. <laughs> I like proper English. Well, well, not, I <laughs> proper English is so boring. I mean, it's so the boring. Wrong show um, for that. Yeah, you're on the wrong show for proper English. I can tell you that. Um, I would imagine your mom and dad are like, don't talk like this. I mean, don't take liberties with the language. Um, that's part of being from the good old Southern colonies, Josh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and Georgia. It, there, there is something interesting happening in America. Um, I mean, what do you, I mean, if you're a lifer, I mean, if you lived in New Jersey, it just didn't get cold in New Jersey. I mean, it's been cold all of your life in New Jersey. I understand a little more severe winter last year than than this year. El Nino, Andrew Dockery was talking about that. It's always been cold in New Jersey certain time of the year, always been hot down south certain times of the year. But what most, I mean, I'd love to talk to someone who felt so bothered by the political situation they found themselves in that they were willing to just pick up and leave. I mean, I understand relocating for a job or, you know, making a change in life or find a fresh start. I mean, I get all that. I understand all that. But the, the, the politics of a state, the politics of a of a community are the reason you left there and moved here. And how much investigating did you did or did you do about the politics of um of where you came from? Speaking of Michigan, tonight at seven thirty, the college football national championship game between the Michigan Wolverines and the Washington Huskies. First time in a long time, Royal Rev of Radio, mm-hmm. that this game does not include a representative from the Southern Colony Conference, the, the, the good old Southeastern Conference. I'm kind of glad. I mean, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, no SEC team. You got the Big Ten. Well, I mean, I guess 2024 Washington, still technically a member of the Pac-12, but they'll officially be a member of the Big Ten after this game concludes and this year's college football season is over. Thanks for listening. We'll try harder tomorrow. Have a good day.